0: Well, welcome to all of our audience right now, but before we get started, we're going to do a special welcome to Caleb and Katie, part of our community chat here at Making the Argument, celebrating their eighth wedding anniversary. That is absolutely outstanding. Congratulations. We're going to go ahead and give you a pass for not watching today on the live stream, but when you watch this later, you'll know that we were thinking of you. And we think it's great that you're celebrating your eighth wedding anniversary. Congratulations to Caleb and Katie. All right. Today, we did an Audible. We had a completely different episode planned for you. I mean, completely different. We actually talked about it in our chat, like, hey, here's a sneak peek of what we're going to do tomorrow. And no, five minutes before we're like supposed to go online, Christian looks at me and he goes, hey, we got, we got an idea for an episode. I'm like, oh, cool. When, when are we going to do this episode? He goes, how about now? So... <laughs> And this is all based off of the worst possible thing you could you could base a sudden audible on, a social media trend. So, Hamilton, why don't you play us the clip of the social media trend that caused us to completely upend and change what we're doing today? Go ahead.
1: How many times, like a week, or just how many times in general, do you think about the Roman Empire?
0: Probably not a lot. Why?
1: Not a lot? When was the last time you thought about it?
0: Maybe a week or two ago. <laughs> Pause. <clears throat> so clearly that guy doesn't think about it enough because <laughs> yeah. when the rest of us were asked asked about it, I, I mean, for me, it's probably a, at least a few times a week, at least a few times a week. And and this trend has been going around with a, ver- a variety of different answers and, and pretty much every single time the girlfriend, the wife, whoever it is, is shocked by how much, even when the guy says like, oh, not very often. Well, what's not very often? Oh, well, like, okay, well, I thought about it like two days ago. (laughs) Like, it blows their mind. And so what we're going to do is we're going to discuss today, right? We're not going to just answer the questions, why do men think about the Roman Empire or Roman history in general? We're going to ask a far more important question, and that's, ladies, why aren't you thinking about it? All of that and more coming up on today's episode, Powered by Good Ranchers. Thank you so much for joining us. If you haven't
2: already, I hope you'll go down to the link in the description and join our community chat. We would love to get to know you there. We have some great conversations. We have a whole channel dedicated to getting your ideas for future episodes. And we would love to have you participate and help drive the direction of making the argument.
0: Okay, so... First things first, why is this interesting? There's actually been a bunch of articles published now. And and what's amazing, too, is some of the articles and some of the people that think they can actually explain this or, you know, and then, of course, some people think it's all just, you know, hearkening back to the patriarchy and and whatnot. We're going to we're going to go today and we're going to give you our perspective, because I, I think it would be fair to say that, I mean, Hamilton does think about the Roman Empire occasionally, occasionally, occasionally. Christian and I much more so. Like it it would it is not at all strange for it to just be a random Tuesday and all of a sudden find Christian and I like in depth, like on on hour two of our discussion of the Gracchi brothers or General Belisarius or the Pax Romana or whether or not Diocletian was a good emperor. And you may be thinking, this seems a little crazy. I had one person even say, with everything going on in the world right now, why would you spend so much time thinking about Rome? And I would say the answers are because of the parallels that we actually see within our society today. And so what we're going to do is we've set up in event in like 15 minutes, we set up a, a, a what I think is going to be a, a pretty useful episode here, where we're going to actually take you through. We got this this one video that kind of shows. How the Roman Empire, um, you know, started, or excuse me, how Rome itself started, evolved, became the Republic, became the Empire. Everybody loves to talk about the fall of the Roman Empire. We're actually going to talk a little bit about the fall of the Roman Republic. Why did it happen? And as we start to explain why it happened and what was the timeline and what are the things that contributed to it, you're going to, I think a lot of people are going to see, even if you've never really thought about Rome, you're going to start to see why so many of us who are also interested in what's going on in our country today find Rome. Fascinating. So let's go ahead and go over to the, uh, the YouTube fact. clip here. Oh, yeah, please. Fun fact: Christians got Today is the
1: anniversary of the beginning of the Pax Romanum. It was yesterday that uh, Domitian was assassinated by the Praetorian Guard, and it was today in 96 AD that Nerva was proclaimed emperor by the Roman Senate. And for those who are fans of Roman history, they would know that Nerva is the first of the five good emperors. After he took office, there were four emperors that came after him, each arguably better than the last, although I would argue that Trajan was actually better than Hadrian. And yeah, he he ushered in, in many ways, the the, the peak of the empire. It was a, a century, it's known as the Pax Romanum, right? A century of large, largely peace and, and definitely prosperity. I think that there were some historians that have written that during that 100 year period, more or less between 96 AD and 190 AD, that that was probably the best time in the entire history of ancient civilization to have lived. Yeah. So I just thought that was interesting that today is the anniversary of the beginning of the Pax Romanum. So it's kind of fitting for this episode.
0: So, so when did Rome begin? Well, Rome is, you know, again, some of it is, is kind of, I mean, it's, there's a lot of mythos going around when, when Rome began. And you know, the story of, um, you know, you had Romulus and Remus and they were raised by a she-wolf and then uh, they were arguing over where the city they were going to establish was going to be, um, set up. And then, you know, Romulus killed Remus and that's why we, that's where we get the name Rome. Like that's why th-
1: it's Rome, not Reams. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's,
0: so that's why we have all this, but what we have right here. And for those of you who are listening on audio, we'll kind of describe what's going on Seven fifty-three, we have the establishment of Rome, right? And again, when we think of Rome, we think of the kind of that big picture, that map, where like all of Europe and North Africa and, and the Levant is is all red and this is the Roman Empire. And what we really want to do is give some perspective on on how things started off. So when Rome started off as a small city state, it was kind of like the Backwater, right? It it was the, um, it wasn't the place you wanted to live and raise a family. There was there was a lot of outcasts. There was a lot of criminals. In fact, there's this whole um, there's this whole painting called the Raping of the Sabine Women, and what it was is Rome needed women, right? There there wasn't enough women living in the Roman city state, and so they actually invited this this neighboring um, the Sabines to come over to a banquet, and they literally kidnapped their wives. And, and the Sabines kind of regrouped and and came back to go back and take their daughters and take their everyone back. And at that point, it was the the Sabine women that actually negotiated a truce between Ro- the Roman men and the Sabine men because at that point they're like, look, we're now wives, we're now mothers, um, and and it, so it's this this interesting timeline in in Roman history, but. This it just goes to show. I mean, when you're talking about you know early, early Roman history, you cannot be thinking this massive empire. You got to be thinking this fledgling little city state. So let's go ahead and play this. Uh, play this video. This comes from Balkan History on YouTube. We want to give them a, a shout out because this really is a, a great a, a great compilation they did. So go ahead and hit play. So 753, Rome established um, tiny little city state in the Italian yeah. Peninsula, and you have the Roman Republic established at 509. So pause right there. So keep in mind, 753 Rome established... You don't become a republic until 509, so you you've got to over 200 years where Rome is actually ruled by kings. Now, again, a lot of this is legend and mythos because theoretically there were there was supposed to be seven kings that all served for you know in an, an inordinate amount of time I for ancient history. I think it was history. Mike Duncan
1: who said yeah. there weren't seven kings of Rome, but there were seven kings of Rome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what one thing that we do know for a fact, like uh, is actually grounded in history, is that there was a Roman kingdom. Yeah, absolutely, no no doubt about that. Now the the order of the kings. The chronology of it, some of the mythos. Obviously, that's a lot of that is up for debate. So, for example, um, one of the early Roman kings, you know, claimed that uh, a shield fell out of the heavens yeah. and and became a, an icon that he used. You know, that the Romans used. Obviously, there's. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's a really good chance that that might not be real. I don't think that the gods threw me, a shield
0: down. It reminds me of Monty Python. Maybe where it was like, the aliens. Where like, what might you king? <laughs> like with the Lady of the Lake extended Excalibur. Like watery tarts sitting around in ponds distributing swords is not a basis for government. But yeah, so you have you have a lot of these. You have a lot of this idea of you know again rooted in myth. But the important part to remember. Is that regardless of what actually happened in the timeline or how many, the last king of Rome was Lucius Tarquinius Superbus, and and part of the reason why Rome became a republic is is because I, I believe it it led to I'm I'm some of this I'm going off of memory, but I believe he actually like stole a a a noble woman or raped a noble woman, and there was such a large popular outcry that. Um, various noble families of Rome essentially overthrew him and vowed that Rome would never have a King. He again. was a
1: tyrant. He was n- not, he, he, he did not respect women at all. He was, no. he was definitely a tyrant though. And um, I mean, he, he's, his nickname was Tarquin the proud. And he, I mean, most Roman historians would absolutely say that he was the worst of the seven of the seven Kings. And yeah, there was, there was an overthrow, right? There, there was a revolution against him and, and then the people proclaimed that, you know, the, the establishment of a republic and that they would never again be ruled by a king, which is very, very interesting if you know if you know how the story progresses from there, of course. Right. But um, Tarquin, Tarquin's overthrow in many respects actually kind of kicks off the beginning of a rapid period of expansion that you see, because up until Tarquin's uh, d- defeat... Um, in five oh nine BC, Rome is still basically just a little tiny Italian city state. It's mm-hmm. it's the city of Rome proper itself in some countryside. And that's it. I mean, they don't even have they don't even have like like a, a quarter, maybe not even a fifth of the Italian peninsula. You have the Etruscans to the north. You have the Samnites in the mountains to the to the west and south. If you go further south, you get into Magna Graecia and you, you get the Greek colonies in southern Italy and Sicily. I mean, the, the bulk of the quote-unquote civilized world at that point in time in, in the 500s BC is really Persia and the Middle East and arguably Greece, yeah. right? Like Rome is... Is on the fringes. Not only is it on the fringes, it's on the wrong side of the Italian Peninsula. All the actions on the Adriatic and you know connected to Greece, and they're they're way far away from that.
0: Yeah. So so you have the the Republic established in five hundred nine, and that's where you get some of the name like like Brutus, the Brutii, right? These are this is like an incredibly noble family within um, within Roman history, and and this actually factors in. Again hundreds upon hundreds of years later where these these families are still very very um, um, popular and, and dominate Roman politics. but you have this is where you start to see Roman Rome starting to expand right So in, in 338 BC now Rome is you know you you have the primary city state but it's starting to expand out on on the uh, western portion of the Italian peninsula. So Rome uh, here's the Rome conquest Roman conquest during the Latin war. go ahead and hit play. Okay. So pause right here. There we go. Now you get into the Samnite Wars. Um, so the Samnites were basically hill tribes within central, like when the in the higher areas within uh, central um, Italy. And they fought, obviously, three wars, because this is talking about the, the Third Samnite War. And because and it took three wars, and, and you actually saw a lot of development with respect to Roman battle tactics, uh, with respect to their recruitment. What most people don't understand is that this stage in the Roman Republic, um, you, you, if you were in the army, if you were in the Roman military, you actually had a certain s- status. A certain amount of wealth. It wasn't like they were just going and drafting peasants off the side of the road and poor people like you actually had to supply your own equipment. And so you you had like the equites and like the idea of the modern Roman legion that we all think about didn't exist at this point. They called them legions, but not in what like the dress that we expect to see and whatnot. That wasn't the case. They still fought a lot more like the Greek style within a phalanx um, and then you, you started to see development within a three-tiered system where they would throw out their they had their, their youngest, most inexperienced fighters that would engage first. Then you had, that was the, um, oh, what was it? It was the uh, V-Lights, uh, the, or the v were the- You're going to know more about skir- this era That was the skirmishers. And then you had the Principis was more of like your a little bit more mature, heavier infantry. Yes, that's true. And then in the very back, you had your uh, uh, triari which were your, your elder, um, your, your, your veterans, right? They were your most experienced veterans. And the whole idea was is that if, if the military got to a point where they had to fall back, they would fall back and regroup behind the triari before they would go back into combat. So
1: this like, is actually something that, that is going to pop up repeatedly throughout Roman history until you get into the late, the late empire is that the Romans do not give up. No, they 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 will oh fight battles. If you actually look up, like you know, list of Roman military defeats, there's a lot. Oh. like catastrophic defeats too, where like whole armies get wiped out, right? Like Caracene, yeah. Um, you, you know, I, like, like all throughout history, I mean, it, it, over and over again, it's I mean, against the the you know the Punic we, Wars, we they cannot,
0: get, we cannot. I'll just put it this: in a modern mindset, we cannot fathom. The, the sort of casualties that Rome took, which we're going to get to as we talk about some of these other things and, and how they recovered from it. Like this is, it's just, it's mind boggling. It, it absolutely is. They They suffered defeats that would have destroyed anybody else. And again, they suffered these defeats, not at a time where they were pulling from, you know, 27 provinces in order to recruit people. This was still primarily just an Italian city state, but they, they the third Samnite war really made them the dominant power in central Italy. That's where you start to, to get this idea of Rome being on the rise. And for our, for our audio listeners who don't get to see the map. Hastasi. Thank you. Angel D. I was.
1: Hastassi. Yes. Yeah. The Velites were like the skirmishers. Then you had the Hastasi, and then thank you for our audio listeners who don't get to see the map. Um, So, so Nick actually knows more about this, this era of Roman history than I do. And the reason why is because this is taking the Samnite wars are taking place simultaneously with the wars of the Diadochi. In the East where Alexander's empire, Alexander dies in 323 BC, his empire disintegrates almost immediately after he dies, I think about two years after he dies and his generals start killing each other off and it just becomes a a complete multi-way, like five-way struggle for power. And the Greeks are basically slaughtering each other in, in the East at the same time that Rome is slowly but steadily expanding across the Italian peninsula. So by the time the third Samnite War begins in 298 BC, the the peak, like the climax of the Diadochi has just been fought, the Battle of Ipsus, which yeah. is in many ways the, 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 the cataclysmic, not the end, but certainly the climax of that conflict. So yeah. the Greeks are too busy killing each other right now to actually necessarily pay much attention to the fact that Rome has become more than just a little tiny city state. It's now actually in some ways like a proper kingdom. It, it controls a decent chunk of the Italian peninsula, but it's not done yet.
0: Yeah. All right. Go ahead and uh, hit play. All right. So yeah, pause right here. Basically what this just shows is that after, by 281, I mean, they're they're dominant within central Italy. They've defeated the Samnites. They've they've taken in that entire area to within the, you know, what is, you really couldn't call it the empire at this point, but the Roman Republic. Um, they're also starting to, to reach out into portions like within the, the boot of Italy. And this is going to have, this is going to have implications later on. Go they're ahead. also fighting the Etruscans. Yeah. Well, I, I, that's going to come up. Go ahead and play or it should. Okay. Yeah, there's stop. the Pyrrhic All right. War. <laughs> All right, the Pyrrhic War. Now, how many of people have heard the term a Pyrrhic victory? Right? It's the idea of a victory that is so costly that it 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 diminishes the victory itself and, and can lead to defeat. And this this actually comes from a Greek general named Pyrrhus. And Pyrrhus was so well respected in ancient times. In fact, there's this there's this interesting story um, later on between Scipio Africanus and, and Hannibal, uh, where he, he talks about like the the three greatest generals of, of all time. And Pyrrhus always gets listed. It's always like Alexander Pyrrhus. And then, you know, Hannibal himself. Hannibal
1: and, names himself. Yeah. And, <laughs> and he's saying,
0: naming himself to the general that beat him. But well, that's a longer story. The point is, is that Pyrrhus had actually had a, 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 a really interesting military career fighting all over Greece, fighting over Southern Italy.
1: He fought at the um, very end of the Diadochi Wars. Yeah. Uh,
0: very, very competent, very, very capable general. Um, and he, and he fought the Romans several times and he defeated them several times, but the Romans kept, they kept coming back, right? They, they kept levying more troops. They kept recruiting. They kept coming back. They kept fighting. And each time they fought Pyrrhus, he, he, he would lose more to the point where he couldn't replenish resources the way that the Romans could. And it made the Romans incredibly difficult. The, the, the Romans became kind of like the, the rock, which with some of these early competitors to Rome, just bash their heads against and, until they had been defeated. The funny thing is that the Pyrrhus, this is
1: where the term comes from, right? Pyrrhic victory, because Pyrrhus would win yes. most of these battles. He would crush the Romans, most of these battles, but he would take such massive casualties and he would beat the Romans. And then they would just come back next fighting season yeah. with the same exact size army. And he'd be like, where, how do they keep fielding armies <laughs> yeah. over and over again? And eventually there's a, there, There's a myth, it might be true that Uh, after one of these battles, Pyrrhus turned to one of his commanders and was like, if we have another victory like this, we will be ruined. Yeah,
0: yeah. One more victory such as this (laughs) will be undone.
1: That's like coined the phrase. And eventually he just decided to pull out of Italy altogether because he didn't think it was worth it. And that is when the snowball effect basically begins where Rome doesn't really have any competitor because they're they're beating the Etruscans to the north. And so Rome is able to more or less consolidate all of Italy south of what eventually becomes known as Cisalpine Gaul, which is modern day like Milan, that area north. Northern Italy, but everything South of that becomes Roman controlled by the end of the Pyrrhic Wars. Yeah.
0: So go ahead and hit play. All right. Pause right here. Now this is where we get in. This is where it gets interesting. So Rome now, uh, Rome now is becoming a, a major power in what you might call the, the Western Mediterranean. And when you get into the first Punic war, which was in the, in the two fifties BC, What's interesting about this is that the the first Punic War was fought against Carthage. And, and the Roman the Roman term for the Carthaginians was Punic and that's why we call them the Punic Wars Carthage has its own really interesting history for those of you that you know know anything about biblical history in the Levant and you've heard of the Philistines uh, well the Philistines are associated with with the Greeks and if you look at um, Carthage Carthage was a a city-state that really came from that same area of the Levant was entire the Philistines? I thought it was the Phoenicians the, okay sorry 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 you're right so you well Yes, the Phoenicians are are the Carthaginians, but uh, the Philistines were actually in the same area of the Levant. It's just that the Phoenicians set up like Tyre, and then Tyre was mm-hmm. Carthage was okay. one of the city-states for that area. So you still have this kind of Greek influence in these these areas within the Levant, within North Africa, the, within Spain. The joke Spain. is
1: that like the the Greeks loved setting up colonies so much that one of their colonies set up colonies.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, so they, they set up Carthage and Carthage that the what's interesting is Carthage also had, it was a, it was a primary city state. It had, um, it also had its own version of a Senate, um, different with respect to religious practices. It was, it was a lot more rooted in kind of like Baal worship. I mean, it did child sacrifice. Yeah, that was
1: the thing that horrified the Romans. Was yeah. The child sacrifice. Yeah.
0: And then, but whereas Rome had put its, its emphasis on its army and its military, um, for its dominance, the Carthaginians had really built a trading empire. So when, when you look at the Carthaginian empire, you you can't think of it as the same sort of empire as you would the Roman empire. The Roman empire really was about settling particular areas and bringing about like Roman culture to those areas where the Carthaginians were more focused on, on the trade component. And so the Carthaginian Navy was what was considered you know, the, the, the bulwark of the Carthaginian military. In fact, their, their army was largely composed of, uh, conscripts, mercenaries, or not conscripts, mercenaries. You, you had certain units that were specialized that were made up of Carthaginians, but a lot of it was, was this. So, when they when they're having their first war, they're fighting essentially over Sicily. That's kind of the main fight here. Syracuse is involved. Um, a lot of this has to do with the Carthaginians coming because they had, they had controlled like Lilyba is a Lilibom? I always pronounce it wrong, uh, but it was the it was a city on the um, western portion of Sicily. Syracuse was a strong um, Roman ally, and then these mercenaries kind of take over. I think it was Messina in the north part of of Sicily, and at one point they're calling for. Roman help. And another part they're calling for Carthaginian help. And now the Romans and Carthaginians are sitting there and this ends up becoming inclined to the causes Belli for them to go to war over control of Sicily. The difference is, is that Rome didn't have a Navy and it turns out there's no land bridges over to Sicily. And one of the, one of the amazing things which goes to this whole idea of, of Roman, um, kind of innovation and being willing to take on kind of the best of the cultures that it it conquers and incorporates into the into the republic and later the empire is this ability to take good ideas and utilize them. Um so it's not that it's not that Rome dominated Corvus? Yeah so so Rome Rome quickly builds a navy. They basically capture a Carthaginian uh trireme or quigmarine I think um they they capture this large Carthaginian ship and they're like all right we can make this and then they do. They like the, the wood is still green, right, when they're throwing these things in the ocean. But they build this enormous fleet, and then they go down and they get their butts kicked. This is the battle of Drapana. There's a funny story here. And by
1: the way, this gets to the heart of, of today's episode of like, you know, why men are obsessed with Rome because there's so many incredible it's, this isn't the only reason, but like, there's so many incredible stories. Like if you enjoy storytelling and you enjoy history, there's so much Roman lore that like you can laugh at, you can be horrified of, you can learn from. And I, I think it was Cicero who once said that those who refuse to learn history will forever remain children. Yeah. And, and I, I, I think that, in fact, there, there's a lot of comments in our chat of people saying over and over again that like part of the reason that they're interested in Rome is because they think that there's a lot, and you brought this up too, Nick, that there's a lot of parallels between us and today. Well, one thing that's not a parallel, but is still hilarious, is the Battle of Drapana. So the, as, as Nick brought up, like the, the mm-hmm. Romans construct this fleet. They have never really fought a naval battle. They don't really know what they're doing, but they have a large fleet. And so they throw it at the Carthaginians, and the uh, Roman admiral... Publius Pulcher, um, he, there's a tradition in the Roman military because they're very superstitious. There's this yeah. thing called the sacred Chickens. <laughs> the sacred Chickens. And yeah. so the morning before the battle all you Drapana, homesteaders out here, you're going to appreciate yeah, this. Here's a homesteading <laughs> reference. Uh, <for laughs> the morning before the battle, and I don't think Hamilton's heard this story, so he might get a laugh at this. The morning before the battle of Trapana, the Roman admiral Pulcher, it's a massive naval battle, by the way, like one of the largest in the history of the Western Mediterranean, he brings out the sacred chickens, which are supposed to reveal the secrets of whether or not the gods have decided that it's, it's time to fight today. And he throws the seed out on the decks and the chickens are supposed to eat the seeds in order to show that it's a favorable conditions to fight. Well, the chickens walk around, but they don't eat any of the seeds. They're avoiding the seeds. And that's an omen in in Roman tradition at this point. That's an omen that you should not fight today. You need to wait for the chickens to eat before you actually engage in battle. If you don't, you're going against the will of the gods. Pulcher's so upset that the chickens haven't eaten that he decides to throw the chickens overboard board and declare that well if they're not hungry maybe they're thirsty (laughs) (laughs) and then he sends his fleet into battle and he gets annihilated the entire Roman fleet gets, gets sunk to the bottom of the sea Poulter goes back to Rome and he actually gets court-martialed
0: for treason for, for, for <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> he gets court-martialed oh, yeah.
1: for ignoring the well, advice of the sacred chicken.
0: And you gotta, you gotta understand too, this is at a time where the military traditions within Rome and Carthage are very different on a number of levels and as are their political systems to some degree. So like in Carthage, if you screwed up as a Carthaginian general, you got crucified. Um, that wasn't necessarily the same thing in Rome. Like they, they had a little bit more, they didn't have a tolerance for incompetence, but they, they understood that you know, sometimes bad things happen. Um, What's also was interesting at the time that Rome is doing this because of the way the Republic is established, you have the Senate and then what you have is you have two consuls. And so if you look at the, the Roman system of government, you are a consul for a year. Well, one of the greatest ways to gain military prestige and economic wealth and whatnot within the Roman Republic was you went to war, you conquered, you know, you did all these things. And, and so, but you had one year. So, as your time was coming up, there was an intense pressure to make sure that you, you know, conquer what you were supposed to conquer when a major battle, do whatever it did within that time frame. Otherwise, the next console would come in and they could get all the credit for it. So it, it's important to understand that Rome set, up uh, after the fall of, of the, the monarchy within Rome, when they set up the Republic, they went through all of these iterations of, of having a Senate and then having consuls and then the, the, the plebs, um, uh, and the patricians, you know, they, they went back and forth on political power in order to make sure that there was still kind of like a nobility, but the, the, what you would call like the common people within Rome were still had some sort of representation and they fought very, very hard to make sure that there was no concentration of power in one person's hands for too long. They were very, very skeptical of that. And we look at that now and say, why would you set up a situation where, you know, a a general is going out there and fighting in the middle of the war, they got to come home and get replaced by another consul. It's like because they didn't want the concentration of power in the hands of one person. They saw that as such a major threat to Roman freedom. Um, and again, people now look at what do you mean Roman freedom? If the people were put shut up, all right, it's, it's antiquity. Like the, you had more freedom in Rome as a Roman citizen than anywhere else in the world at that time. So I'm sorry if you didn't have equal representation at the bathhouse. like you still had more freedoms, right? They, so they fought hard to, to be able to protect that. The reason I bring this up is, is two things. Um, First of all, Rome comes out of the first Punic War having having won it. Um, the, the largest naval battle in history was was fought during the the Punic Wars, um, but one of, a really interesting story, and this will give you some insight into the Roman mindset at that time. Um, there was a, a Roman consul named uh, Regulus and, and he was in charge. Basically once the, the Romans, they, they went in and they, they attacked Carthage specifically and they had experienced a great deal of success in fighting the Carthaginian mercenaries. But they got to a point where Regulus is like, my time is running out. I've got to hurry this thing along. We got to take Carthage. Well, he ended up getting defeated and captured. Well, as a condition of his release, he had to swear before the gods that he would go back and encourage the Roman Senate to stop fighting the war against Carthage to, to essentially agree to terms. So Regulus goes back to Rome having been captured, right? His army defeated. And he encourages the Roman Senate to continue fighting the war. And then in order to maintain his word to the gods, he gets back on a ship goes back down to carthage and tells the carthaginian senate that he had done the exact opposite of what he was supposed to do and gets tortured to death like he knows he's going to get tortured to death if he goes back to carthage and but it was it was just this mindset that there was a there was a concept of roman honor um the mos maiorum yeah there was a, there was a concept of roman honor that that transcended like this life and the whole deal and so the idea of you know, he couldn't go back and tell the Romans to stop fighting. That would be dishonorable. And yet he couldn't just stay in Rome because he gave his word before the gods. So he had to go back and get tortured to death. So he knowingly went to Rome to do that and knowingly went back to Carthage to do that. And, and he, and he was still, even though he was a defeated general, he was still held up within Roman society and culture as a personification of Roman honor.
1: There, I, I, maybe at some point in the episode, we, we might want to, go a little bit deeper into the Mos Mayorum and, and but 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 before we do, there's there's another character that appears in this time period, actually a little bit before uh, the Samnite Wars and the Punic Wars that I want to briefly talk about because I think it's actually relevant to American politics today and that's Cincinnatus. Yeah. Um, Hamilton, I think that you actually have a link for Cincinnatus. It might be the next one after yeah, the, it is. Yep, that is, yeah, here he one. is. Um, those who know about Cincinnati know that, I mean, we have a city in the U S actually named after him.
0: Oh, George Washington actually set mm-hmm. up a, a, like a, a group of officers called the order of Cincinnatus. Do,
1: do you want to talk about Cincinnati for a minute and, and, and yeah, sure.
0: how unique he is? So earlier, earlier on in the Republic. So this is actually before I should have brought this up earlier, um, er, Cincinnatus. Now, again, it's easy to look at it through a modern mindset and be like, "Well, you know, Cincinnatus was fighting against the rights of the plebeians and whatnot." The, the important thing to remember and the reason why Cincinnatus is, is somewhat revered is because there there was a crisis at, at a point in the early republic, and they they essentially asked um, Lucius Cincinnatus to come out of retirement. He was he was a you know he'd been a, I think he'd been a consul, um, he had been a victorious uh, military commander. And they asked him to come up to essentially assume dictatorial powers in order to beat back the, the revolts and uprisings that was taking place uh, within the Republic. And, and the reason why he's remembered as an icon of Roman virtue is because he was given essentially absolute power in order to deal with the crisis. And when the crisis was over, he gave it up and went back to his farm. And so the reason why, you know, George Washington was compared to a modern Cincinnati is because obviously at the end of the revolution, George Washington was immensely popular. He was, he, he was the only one that had a a large standing, you know, well-equipped army at the time. There were people within his, within his staff that wanted him to march on Washington uh, or it wasn't Washington DC wanted to march on the continental Congress at that point because of you know, a a lot of promises that politicians had made to the continental army and the officers of the Continental Army that hadn't made good on. There were, there were people, um, theorizing about the idea of an, of an American monarchy, all of these things. And there, there's this scene in American history, which kind of replicates what we see with Cincinnati's where George Washington is essentially pulling out. He's got all of his officers who at this point are furious and they want to march on the continental, um, Congress. And George Washington pulls out this note that he, that he begins to read to them. And as he pulls it out, he squints and then he pulls his glasses out of his uh, pocket and he puts on his glasses and he, and he says, forgive me. I have, you know, I have grown not only old, but blind in service to my country. And that was it. Like it, it broke like the, the officers at that point, they, they felt horrible that they had even considered, um, doing something like what they were going to do because of just the, the absolute presence that George Washington had and the, the amount of respect that they all had for him. And so that's why the Cincinnatus, um, it, it, again, it's not only it has not only been a, a standard for Roman virtue, it is it is become a standard for someone that has the ability to essentially take power who refuses to do so and then peacefully surrenders the reins of power back to an elected body
1: history is incredibly sparsely filled with people like, mm-hmm. like Cincinnatus. There's very yeah. few people throughout history that, that have his type of moral convictions, which is why he's upheld by not just ancient Romans, his contemporaries and his successors after him, but by Americans even today, it, you know, what 2,500 years after this guy lived, you know, we still consider him to be, a a prime example of political virtue because it's very, very rare for people to usually the, the trend is as people obtain more political power, they become more corrupted by that political power. Yeah. And Cincinnati is the exact opposite. And this is actually something that you're going to see pop up when you get into the late stage of the Roman Republic, Mm -hmm. because after the Punic Wars, you start running into some really, really big social and economic and political problems that plunge the republic into chaos.
0: Yeah. But the, the important part, and I'm, just, I'm I'm glad Christian brought this up, the important part to understand about Cincinnatus, the important part to understand about the overthrowing of, of Tarquin and everything else is that what you're seeing develop within Roman culture is not only a strong sense of martial prowess, right? The idea of, of going to war and fighting and then fighting for the Republic is, is the individual duty of citizens, not slave armies, not mercenaries. It's the individual duty of citizens of the Republic, but it's also this sense of intense honor, um, that is necessary. And when, when you have a culture which inculcates that and makes it a key component of everything you do, um, you're, you're building a, a strong foundation from which to build responsible governments, um, you know, a, a an effective military, essentially the means to not only establish um, something, but also to protect what it is that you have established. And again, that's, it's not to we shouldn't be overly romantic about Rome in the sense that like, Oh, they did everything right. Aren't they wonderful? Aren't they a great model? I don't want sacred chickens. Right? <laughs> All right. But, um, but it's it's about understanding the time and the place and the context of the history. It was pretty pretty powerful. Let's go back to the map here. Okay, go ahead and uh, hit play again. So we get done with the first Punic War, and what you're going to see is Rome has essentially taken Sicily. They've taken, I think after the first Punic War, they've also taken Sardinia and Corsica. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've, they've started to establish themselves. If you're looking at the map right now, you also see there's this little part at the bottom of it. Oh,
1: here's the part where we get to zoom out. Yeah, here's the part
0: at <laughs> the bottom of it where you start to see. Oh, um, Hamilton,
1: you're going to want to pause here because this is the yeah. second Punic War now.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, at the bottom of Syracuse is still like an independent city state, but closely aligned with Rome. Um, Now we get into the second Punic war and this is where you start to see some major differences because again, Rome has become a a major Mediterranean power, but it's still not, you know, the Imperial juggernaut that we think of it as. And the second Punic war, that's the hardest fought of goes incredibly badly for the Romans. This is where we, this is where Hannibal comes on the scene. And so the, the, Hannibal's dad, Hamiclar, had, had actually, uh, Hamilcar, had actually made him swear an oath of eternal hatred of, of the Romans because he had been defeated by the Romans. And he had also been very, very frustrated with the political system in Carthage because he didn't think he'd have been properly supported. Well, Hannibal... Incredible general, obviously. I, I, Hannibal's in one of the top five generals of all history, and and you have to understand what he had to do. So he built he built the military that he would go to war with based off of uh, uh you know Numidian uh, uh, horsemen and Libyan spearmen and Iberian infantry, which is all from Spain and Portugal, Lusitania. Um, he built this up, and then he he marched overland to challenge Rome directly. Like he, he wanted to fight inside the Italian peninsula. So he had, he had a multicultural army, a multinational army. Um, much of it made up of, of Gaelic, Lusitanian, Iberian, Libyan, Numidian mercenaries, but they were all incredibly loyal to, to Hannibal because from the very, from the very onset, he started to win major victories against significant Roman forces that had been sent to, to beat him. And then of course the crossing of the Alps, you know, he he crossed the Alps. He had elephants. He lost most of his elephants coming through the Alps. A couple of them made it through though. Yeah, a couple made it through, but it, it what it really did is it surprised the Romans because you got to remember this is a time there's no satellite imagery, right? There's no there's no highway no, the Ro- system. the Roman there's-
1: outposts in Cisalpine Gaul are like What's this giant army descending from yes. the Alps? Yeah, so you got to
0: figure the, the <laughs> Romans are all there in like, in, in like northern, uh, northwestern Italy. They'd already fought a couple of battles against, uh, Hannibal and lost in what would be like modern day, like, like north, uh, northwestern Italy and I think southern like Tuscany France. Tuscany and. Yeah, that Tuscan Tuscany area. So they'd already lost. And so they're, they're deploying more Python troops. Area. They're deploying more troops as, as they're anticipating. And then all of a sudden, Han- Hannibal drops in, um, you know, out of the Alps. Do
1: we want to talk about what is arguably the single worst Roman military defeat of all time,
0: which oh, takes place? We're in this? we're going to talk about this. So you got to understand, Rome just keeps getting their butts kicked, like bad victories, um, or excuse me, bad losses, to where they're losing, like they're in, like their entire military force that they send up to go up and deal with Hannibal gets crushed multiple times. Multiple times as he's moving down the Italian peninsula, peninsula. but the, the absolute masterpiece for um, Hannibal at this point is, is the battle of uh, Cannae. It looks like Cannae, but it's actually pronounced uh, Cannae. So he, he gets down there to give everyone an idea of where we're at. The Romans have lost battle after battle after battle. And there's this, there's this Roman general named Fabius, and this is where we get the term Fabian tactics, um, or delaying tactics. And Fabian has kind of realized that, okay, yeah, cannibal is a brilliant general and he seems to win every single fight that we come up against him, but we can wait him out because the Carthaginians are not sending proper support to Hannibal. Hannibal's having to rely largely on either dissidents within the Italian peninsula, Gauls within Northern Italy that he can like pull into his ranks to fight the Romans but the Romans don't like this idea of delaying tactics. They want to go out there and they want to defeat Hannibal in combat. And so they've sent out several forces. They've gotten destroyed several times. And now they're like, screw this. We're going to deploy one of the, the largest armies that we've, I think at that point it was the largest army that they had, that the Romans had ever fielded, ever fielded. Um, In fact, let me just get you some quick numbers uh, for this because at, at Cannae, <coughs> the, the Romans
1: fielded like over eighty five thousand men, and yeah. the Carthaginians had about fifty thousand men. Hannibal was decisively outnumbered. And
0: so, so to give you an idea, it, around this, so this is according to one ruler, eighty six thousand four hundred men for the Romans, fifty thousand uh, for the Carthaginians. And again, the Romans had the two consul system. So, what did the two consul system meant when they went to when they went to war? Well, you had one army essentially two commanding generals is a good way to think of it on one day. One of them was in command. And on the next day, the next one was in command. And then it flipped back and forth like this. Oh, I'm sure
1: that worked perfectly.
0: So they are, they are <laughs> closing in, they're closing in on Hannibal. And the point to remember at this point is again, the the Romans were an infantry based military. So heavy infantry, the, the, the legionnaire was the, the mainstay of the, of the Roman military. Whereas the Carthaginians, um, they relied a lot more on missile troops like Balearic Slingers, uh, which, which come from these little islands off the coast of Spain, uh, but they were like world renowned, but Balearic Slingers were world renowned. To this renowned day,
1: actually, they still practice it. Yeah, it's, it, it's
0: incredible. And then their, their cavalry, their Numidian, their Numidian uh, cavalry was just incredible. And so Hannibal's looking at this and he's, he's not quite outnumbered two to one, but pretty close. And he's on Roman territory. And what he does is he sets up his position in such a way to where you've got a, a river on one side and you've got uh, high ground. You've got like kind of mountainous area over on the other side. And the Romans are thinking to themselves, this is good for us because they're a heavy infantry, you know, base military. And so they don't want there to be a lot of area where Hannibal's cavalry can go around and, and flank them and everything else. So what they do is they concentrate everything in a relatively small, space and Hannibal Hannibal basically puts his troops in like a half moon shape, right? Half moon shape. And he's got his cavalry on the flanks and his whole strategy is for his cavalry to go up, chase off the Roman cavalry as quickly as possible. Take them out of the, take them out of the battle. And then what's going to happen is, is that he's creating this environment to where the Romans are going to continue to push their infantry as hard as they can into the center because they want to break the center and then destroy both halves. And so what he does is he hides some of his best Libyan troops behind the mainstay of the thing and then when the Romans come in that's that's exactly how the battle transpires his cavalry chases off the Roman cavalry the Romans keep pouring infantry in because the line is starting to break right? The line is starting to break and the Romans are sensing that we're on the verge of victory. So they keep pouring more units into the center, into the center, into the center. Well, what happens? Well, all of a sudden the center starts to buckle, but the flanks stay up high. He deploys his best infantry. And at the same time, now you've got these Roman legions that are so, you know, packed in tight together, they can't even fight anymore. And then all of a sudden the Carthaginian cavalry returns and attacks the Romans from the rear. And and at the end of this fight, just to, to give you to give you an idea, at the end of this fight, out of the eighty six thousand four hundred Roman military, <clears throat> the casualties are estimated between sixty seven thousand and eighty thousand casualties. Eighty thousand. Now you need to put this in perspective. We didn't have. We and, and when we say casualties, we mean. According to Livy, it was 48,200 killed. According to uh, uh, Polybius, 70,000 killed, right? The Carthaginians suffered between 5,000 and 8,000 um, casualties. So this is not just a horrible defeat for the, the Romans. This is catastrophic. Like the number of senators at that time, senators just mean you were sitting in the back with a toga. Senators suited up and went to war they they lost several senators they lost several generals they lost like some of the cream of of roman nobility at that time
1: livy says that 80 senators were killed
0: and and then if you look at this in terms of of population at the point this would be the equivalent of the united states we currently have 330 million people right this would be the equivalent of us losing probably millions of troops in one battle millions of people in one battle killed not wounded not missing and at killed dead. If, if we want to look at the population numbers for where Rome was at at that particular time in its history and how many people it lost. Could you imagine waking up, waking up, you know that there's this, there's this hostile army within the United States roaming around a couple hundred miles from Washington, DC, and you deploy the largest army you ever have in your, in your entire country's history. And it gets wiped out. I don't mean beaten bad in the field. I mean, obliterate. It's gone. It's gone. Right. For something like that to happen today in the United States, it would mean us losing. I I mean, I'm, I'm estimating right now because I don't have the full numbers, but it would have to be millions of people dead in one battle. We cannot conceive of that. We didn't lose a million people in world war II. We didn't lose a million people in the civil war. They lost that. One day, they lost the equivalent of that in one day. And the amazing part is they won the second Punic War.
1: They defeated Hannibal.
0: They defeated Hannibal eventually. And, and, what, and the, how did they do it? Well, they realized that they were having a lot of trouble trying to defeat Hannibal. And so what did they do? They packed up their ships. They packed up their army and they sent it down and they directly challenged Carthage. And then what did Carthage do? It immediately called for Hannibal to return and protect Carthage. And then they were able to beat them on the plains of Zama, and that's where you get the rise of S- Scipio Africanus, who was the the general that defeated Hannibal at that battle. And at that point, Carthage was essentially done as a major power. They still existed because you had the Third Punic War, where they eventually the Romans would come down and just completely destroy, um, just completely destroy Carthage altogether. Like to this day, if you go and you visit Carthage, it's rocks and some. And some old ruins. They eventually
1: ruins. rebuilt it. It became Tunis.
0: They, they, they've got some old ruins. Well, no, but I'm talking about that's the modern day Tunis is not sitting on top of. That's a know, good point. Yeah.
2: Um, all right. We have a few questions to get to if that's all yeah, right. Yeah, please go ahead. Uh, Angel D, uh, who asked this question a little bit earlier, thank you for the super chat, asked, How did they keep fil-
0: fielding such large armies? So it. They could, they could basically, I mean, they they severely depleted their male population, um, but there was also just this in intensity because, again, at that point, there was a very real concern that Hannibal was going to take Rome. The problem was is that Roman walls were big. Hannibal didn't have a lot of siege equipment. He really wasn't known for being a siege or a general. Um, he won his victories in the field. And... So they, they had to, they really didn't have a choice. There were, there were some people that wanted to sue for peace, but it was relatively few because Rome didn't sue for peace. Um, in fact, I think the last time that Rome had ever sown and had ever capitulated to an enemy has been when the Gauls sacked Rome and this was hundreds of years before that. And they had kind of essentially vowed that it would never happen again. And so you, they, they still, they, I mean, they, they still had a large population from which they could recruit troops from, And they did that. But what was interesting is, is that while Hannibal was largely dependent upon mercenary troops or supports from Carthage, which didn't come because there was politicians within Carthage that didn't like Hannibal. And would, in fact, they even went on to say like, well, if Hannibal's doing so well in Italy, why does he need more reinforcements? Like total douchebag politician. But anyway, um, so they were still able to pull from their population in order to field armies. And, and there was a there was a, a an intense sense of duty to the republic uh, to fight. And that's that's how they were able to do it. Along with, you know, they, they, they still had um, populations within the Italian peninsula that they could pull from and, and other places as well.
2: OK, Nick, uh, Micah K in the chat. Let us know that we missed an opportunity. What? We we missed an opportunity. Oh. They said Sacred Chickens would have been a great segue. Oh, I was oh, waiting for you to make the Sacred Chickens Good Ranchers. That would have been that
1: would have,
0: been. that would have been a great that would have been because culture um, would have won if oh. he had
1: Good Ranchers.
0: That's you know, <laughs> you know what? I guess we're we're just gonna we're just gonna have to go in it. Yeah. If 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 you want to avoid a major naval defeat at the hands of the Carthaginian Navy, then what you're gonna need to do right now is go to Good Ranchers and use promo code Nick in order to get what a true sacred <laughs> chicken tastes like. I'm not talking about the pagan sacred chickens. No, no, no. I'm talking about the sort of chickens that are raised the way that you think all chickens, when you see organic on the packaging, is raised. I don't mean they had access to sunlight or they had access to organic feed. I meant they actually got to go out there and live the sort of life that a sacred chicken in ancient Roman times could have only dreamed of. And now, good ranchers, in a display of its own ability to, dis- to take on The the best of what various cultures and various institutions have to offer. What have they done? They have found the very best American farms all over the United States, and they have partnered with them in order to bring you quality poultry, quality beef, quality pork, not to mention fact wild caught seafood, wild caught seafood. And if you can have this all delivered to your door. In fact, why are we obsessed about Rome? Because we're trying to find all the reasons why the Roman Republic failed. And it's probably a lack of protein in the end. It's probably a lack of protein and good ranchers is here to make sure that America does not fall for the same reasons. And you, you have an opportunity to get $25 off your order plus free shipping. Plus if you sign up, if you sign up for one of the subscriptions, you will get 2 pounds of free ground beef every month with that subscription. Now, later on in this episode, we're going to talk about how inflation actually contributed to the fall of the Roman Empire, and if you want to know what Good Ranchers is doing to combat inflation well, if you sign on to one of the subscriptions, you can get locked in to your price for 2 years. So, what is the one of the number one ways that you can prevent the fall of your own very own family empire? Well, Start doing business with a sort of company that understands what you need to do to survive and thrive. Now, good ranchers, promo code Nick, twenty five dollars off, um, free shipping, and if you sign up for one of the subscriptions, two pounds of ground beef free every month. That is that is hard to beat. That is hard to Very beat. Hard you to redeemed beat. yourself there with that ad pitch. That was oh my gosh! I, I, I was saved so into at this at the
1: last minute. I was like, come uh, on, sacred
0: chickens! It's it's like the <laughs> ad rights itself. I know. Oh gosh, I, you're, you're Micah. You were right, man. I, I choose. Thank you. All I'm right. Thank loving
1: you. this this episode though. You have a couple other... Uh, uh, we've
2: got uh, another super chat to get to uh, from the Professor Keene. Another Roman trope is that I fear that the Democrat Senate wants Emperor Trump to visit and give them a speech while they sharpen their knives.
0: Oh, we're uh, about to get uh, to that
1: in a minute. Wait, <laughs> the Ides of March.
0: <laughs> we're we're going to we're gonna get to the Ides of March on that one. Yeah, th- there is a lot of... Th- this is one of the things that's interesting. So many people talk about the fall of the empire without really discussing a whole lot of the fall of the republic. And And that's not to say it's not mentioned at all, but it's, it's almost like a, a, there's so much focus on Julius Caesar and and not enough focus on all of the things that took place leading up to that. Yeah. This didn't happen. The Republic did not fall because a Roman general decided to march across the Rubicon with a couple of legions. That's not why it fell. There's a whole host of reasons that, that led up to that, that made the environment ripe for that sort of thing to take place. Caesar did not emerge from a
1: vacuum. Yeah. He was he was a sign of the times. Yes. And he put an end to an empire or to a republic that was already in crisis for arguably a century before. In fact, that's actually the next major like point in history that we want to bring up. Although I think you have a question. super
2: chat from Anton. Yeah. Do you blame Roman losses on poor consul leaders? Oh, I have a post that you liked from a few years
1: ago that is actually quite funny. Um, So remember back a few years ago, especially during- Is this relevant to this question? Yeah, yeah. Remember like (laughs) a few years ago- Remember a few years ago when like you saw all these people on the left that were posting things that were like obviously false during like the rioting in 2020 about how yeah. oh, like my five-year-old says that Trump is a fascist and we need to <laughs> overthrow him in order to preserve our democracy. Like yeah. you would just see these like obvious fake stories that like members of the corporate press would like tweet out like, yeah, your five-year-old really knows a whole lot about American America's political system. I'm going to press X to doubt on that one. So I ended up <laughs> mocking that. Again, this was just a common thing that happened in 2020 is is this theme. And so I ended up mocking that and I wrote a post in 2020 that Nick actually laughed at. And I said, my cat just asked me, why did Consul Gaius Varro deploy so many of his men along such a narrow front thinking he could smash the heart of the Carthaginian army at the Battle of Cannae only um, even though he knew that the possibility of winning such an engagement almost unscathed against Hannibal was near zero. I could not answer and was left literally shaking. (laughs) 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 so my answer to that super chat would be Part of it is extremely poor competency among the generals. Like Varro Varro just made a terrible mistake. Another part of it was, I think, politics. The, the Romans were, were very uninterested in Fabian tactics, right? They wanted to go into the field, you know, fight the good fight, defeat Hannibal in a pitched battle rather than, than play defensive. And it was this, this bit of hubris underestimating Hannibal combined with poor poor levels of tactical planning by their commanders and then some political rivalries within the Roman political system and and how that was unique in terms of, of distributing power and a military level that I think contributed to some of these catastrophic early defeats.
0: Yeah, I I think, I think poor consul leadership, I think just poor military leadership in in many respects can be, can be blamed for some of the more, um, what is it like, like Trasimene, um, as well as, as canny. But I, I think Christians also right. I think I think the political motivation to get a victory and to get a victory quick um, pushed a lot of military commanders into a position where they they made some they they rushed some decisions that they shouldn't have done. Like they eventually would go back to Fabian and the and the Fabian tactics would would prove to work uh, because. Hannibal was in a very, very difficult logistical situation. There's a reason why in the military terms they say that good commanders think about strategy, but great commanders think about logistics. Because you can have the best trained army, you can be the best tactician on the planet. If you can't feed or equip your military, you lose. And you'll lose to a commander that isn't nearly as good at you as as tactics on the battlefield, if they can overwhelm you with forces and, and logistics. And so a combination of Fabian tactics and the Romans going on the offensive against uh, Carthage itself. And I think probably understanding some of the motivations because there was a lot of fighting within Carthage because the Carthaginians, they wanted, they wanted to end the war to get back to trade trade was how they, they experienced dominance. It, It wasn't through military conquest. That's not to say they didn't have military conquest, but it wasn't their bread and butter. And so they, they saw war as kind of a positive impediment on on the trade. And so, the, the Romans finally adjusted their strategy on the Italian peninsula. They finally adjusted their strategy with respect to their offense. And that's what eventually led to their, their victory in the Second Punic War. And the reason why it's so important, there's, there's two reasons why I think the Second Punic War is critical as we review kind of what happened with the fall of the Roman Republic. One, this is where Rome really went from being um, just kind of an Italian power. Because if you look at if you look at modern day Italy, right? Modern day Italy is Italy, Sicily, mm-hmm. and uh, what's Sardinia, yep. and then um, Corsica is French. is French, Corsica's French. Um, but it's still largely there, there's a lot of shared. Even though there's there's different tribes, there's different you know there's the Etruscans and the Latins and the Samnites and and the Sicilians, and but there's still um, some degree of kind of shared understanding, culture, traditions, and and whatnot. After the second Punic War, they become a lot more of what we associate with a, a multicultural or, or, or multicultural environment. So you're, you're seeing, go ahead and hit, hit play on the map again. Um, and this is where you see, you know, Rome start to, to really expand out. You see them expanding out into uh, northern Italy, into Spain. They become an imperial power, not just
1: a, a kingdom on the Italian peninsula. They,
0: yeah, they're not and understand something. We don't mean imperial in the sense that they have an emperor. I would what, pause. We're wait one second. We don't mean the sense in the emperor. What we mean is 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 they um, they, they now, again, they have a multicultural jurisdiction that they're governing. They, they control more than just Latins and Romans yes. and, and Italians. So that now they have Carthaginians. And then um, it, what's interesting is that um, not long after that, they also end up going to war and they end up conquering Greece. Mm-hmm. And you have to understand, this is just... It, if you were... This is something that for the Greeks, they have been... So dominant, the, the within world the world, power. The, the world power, the Greek city states, and then Macedon specifically. Um, I mean, this is this is not long after Alexander the Great had conquered, you know, most of what we consider to be like the known world, like and the other it's, superpower. It's also
1: worth pointing out that, that I, I mentioned this earlier that like around the time the Samnite Wars were taking place, the the Greeks were killing each other off in the Wars of the Diadochi after yeah. Alexander's death, but even after the even after the Battle of Ipsus, after you know a, after the permanent division of Alexander's Empire into multiple successor states it's still the Greeks that are dominating yes. the civilized world it's now multiple Greek successor kingdoms right you've got the the Seleucids and 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 you've got the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Macedonians under Antigonus' successors and stuff like that but there's still even though there's not a unified Macedonian Alexander Empire, it's still multiple Greek successor states to Alexander's original empire that are controlling basically the civilized world. The Greeks are still in control here. And then Rome comes along after they finally wipe out the Carthaginians in the Third Punic War, and they turn their attention to the east and they march against the Greeks, and they beat the Macedonians. The Macedonians have never been defeated by anyone other than other Macedonians, right, in in the yeah. Wars of the Diadochi. But after those get settled down, they, they run into this new foe, and the Romans beat them repeatedly. They fight three wars against—actually, I think they fight four wars against Macedon. And Macedon gets conquered. Greece itself becomes a Roman province, which is—that's just an earth-changing— you know, circumstance in terms of geopolitics. And they don't even stop there. The Romans expand into Asia yeah. and they start taking parts of Anatolia from the Seleucids. Turkey. Yeah. They, they, they fight a huge war with Antiochus the third, the great, who's probably like the most powerful of the post Alexander warlords over there. And they beat him too. And so, I mean, you eventually you get to a point that by like the, the, the second century BC, like the one thirties, one twenties, that time frame, Rome is, is, It's still a republic, but it's an imperial power. It controls territories from Spain and modern-day Portugal all the way to modern-day Turkey. And what you start running into, this is when the crisis of the Roman Republic starts to actually pick up. And this is where I think in the episode we're going to start talking about the decline and fall of the republic. It's at its military peak, unchallenged, but internally... The, the, the institutions that have fueled the Republic for at this point like 400 years are starting to come undone
0: this is what's what's interesting about this let's let's take a let's take a quick break and look at kind of like the Roman system of government they have right now so I'm gonna read this this actually comes from uh, uh, an article from National Geographic um, so the Senate lasted as a sole governing body for the Republic for only a brief time. That was from five Oh nine to 494 BCE. And then a strike orchestrated by the uh, uh, plebeians resulted in the establishment of the concilium plebis or the council of the plebs. This gave the plebeians a voice in the government. As a result, new legislative or lawmaking bodies of the Roman Republic were formed called assemblies. These legislative bodies shared power in the following ways. So you had the, and I'm going to screw up some of the Latin here here. I apologize. But the Comitia Centuri- Centuriata, this body decided about war, passed laws, elected magistrates. Those were consuls, praetors, censors, considered appeals of capital convictions and conducted foreign relations. So a lot of this kind of you know, kind of executive branch style uh, things. Then you had the concilium plebis. This body elected its own officials and formulated decrees for observance by the plebeian class, uh, in 287 BC, it gained the power to make all decrees binding for the entire Roman community. So uh, originally think of this as almost kind of like a lower legislative body that was able to pass laws for the, the plebeians, but not the patricians. Then you had the, uh, uh, comita, uh, tributa, um, the tribal assemblies, open to all citizens, uh, who only could be free adult males, elected minor officials, approved legislative decisions, often on local matters, and could wield judicial powers, but uh, could only levy fines rather than administrator punishment. Um, and and again, there there would be various things that would change over time. But here's what started to happen. Um, so again, you have it. You, When we think of Rome, also the tribunes, right? You you had the, so you also had the tribunes and and they had certain veto powers. So essentially the Senate could pass certain laws, but the, the plebs had a say in electing tribunes and the tribunes could veto that. And you had two tribunes. Um, and, And so the idea was, as you're starting to see this, is that you have the patricians, you have the plebeians, the, the, or the plebeians. I always screw that up too, but you have this, this. Desire to make sure that everyone has some degree of representation and that you have the ability to prevent any one group from just getting a massive amount of power to to control and dominate the others. They
1: really believed in the separation of powers because they didn't, remember what we said when they overthrew Tarquin the Proud, they did not want a king. They did not want centralized power and control. And so the Roman constitution, which was an unwritten constitution, really tried to emphasize dividing up political power As much as possible, you could have circumstances where a dictator back then the term was a neutral term. It wasn't considered evil. You could have circumstances where a dictator could be given an incredible amount of control like Cincinnatus was. But that would be a temporary emergency fixture. The Romans really wanted to avoid the consolidation of political power. In fact, so much so that if you read into this is again, this this is another reason why men are very interested in the Roman Roman Empire and Roman Republic, for that matter, because our founding fathers were interested in the Roman Republic. When they constructed the American Constitution, they modeled a lot of the American Constitution off of the Roman Constitution, and specifically the Roman Republican Constitution, because they they believed that, well, first off, this republic lasted 500 years. That's actually an incredible track record. And part of the reason that it was able to last so long was because they believed in this, in, ver, at the time, very ground-shaking, earth-shattering concept, which is dividing political power rather than consolidating it. And so our founding fathers took that principle. And when they created things like the American Senate, they tried to model it off of the Roman Senate. Same thing with the House of Representatives being the other branch. Same thing with having a chief executive that could have veto power over the whims of the legislature. And again, these things are what allowed Rome to be politically stable. The other point that is extremely relevant for what's about to be brought up in this topic is Rome had a long, long long-standing political tradition of political nonviolence. Yeah. They they settled their disputes peacefully, domestically. They, like, like when we think of Roman history now, we think of civil wars and coups and and assassinations and murders and that became the norm. I mean, it, it, the most dangerous job in the ancient world was arguably being a Roman emperor being assassinated <laughs> by your own Praetorian yeah. guard, but that came much later in the top I, I, in the history. In the Republican era, since basically the overthrow of Tarquin the empire the, the Roman Republic went hundreds, literally hundreds of years without an act of political violence until you get to the Gracchi brothers.
0: Yeah. And and when this is the this is the part to understand is that what was going on at this point is that Rome was rapidly expanding. So it is as you look at this, for the first several hundred years of the Roman Republic, it was pretty much confined to or for the first uh, couple hundred years of the Roman, was kind of refining the Italian Peninsula. Now put this in perspective: the the United States hasn't even been around for three hundred years. All right, so they're growing rapidly. They're they're growing rapidly, and now after the now after the the um, uh, completion of of the Second Punic War and the wars against uh, and the wars of essentially conquer uh, Greece and and against the Macedonians, they have more than doubled the size. Uh, of the republic, the 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 land and the peoples within the republic in a in a relatively short period of time, and again one of the primary ways that you gained wealth within the the Roman uh, Republic, especially if you were part of the patrician class, was through leading armies, conquering territory, and when that land was conquered, it, it disproportionately went to the aristocracy, and so you started to see. Um, you, you started to see some real issues. Uh, go ahead and play again, just so we can go to a little bit farther down here, so I can show you kind of where we're at right. So you you you, you see in this map where now the Rome uh, Roman has Spain, it has Carthage, it has Sicily, uh, it has Greece, northern Italy. It's now starting to take portions of, of southern France, which was kind of part of of Gaul at that point. Pause right here. Um, Egypt becomes like a protectorate of Rome. Like all these things are starting to take place. And you're, you're starting to see, and, and even before that, a couple of things that happened that are, are significant. So like I said before, this is the part where we get into why is the Republic now in danger? Um, go to the Gracchi brothers. It's it's that uh, that one right there. Not that one, next one. Okay. So, this is important. So the Gracchi brothers were two brothers at the start of the late Roman Republic, Tiberius Gracchus and Gaius Gracchus. They served in the Plebeian, uh, they served in the Plebeian tribunates of 133 BC, 122 and 121 BC. So remember, as the numbers get smaller in BC, that's where you're, you're, getting, you're, getting, closer you're getting closer to Christ. Um, they have been a, been received as well-born and eloquent advocates for social reform who were both killed by a reactionary political system. Their terms in the Tribune precipitated a series of domestic crises, which are viewed as unsettling the Roman Republic and contributing to its collapse.
1: They were so, relatively young too, by the way. I think yeah. that, that Tiberius was my age when he was assassinated. Could you
0: imagine me being a Tribune? Uh, I can imagine you being assassinated. I'm <laughs> I walked right into that one. <laughs> so, uh, so understand. So, but, before we, um, uh, so t- to put this in perspective, you're starting to see the, the rise of advocates within the, the tribunes. So the tribunes, again, think of the tribunes, you have the consuls, which are kind of like the head, the executive heads of the government. It's the closest thing we would have to like a president. Right. And then you have the tribunes, which which are supposed to represent kind of the will of of, uh, the plebeians. And with the veto power, tribunes do have the power to stop a lot of what's going on. Right, they they can't necessarily be proactive in all their legislation, but they can stop a lot what's going on, and that provided them their negotiating power when it came to things like land reform. So the Gracchi brothers um, were were trying to address some of the issues that we had with the increase, or we had the issues that the Republic had with the increase of massive slave labor, because every time the Roman military went and conquered somebody, it's not like you just killed all your enemies or they just no they <laughs> one of the ways that Roman soldiers made money was not just through looting and pillaging, but it was also through the capturing and selling of slaves.
1: So by the way, this was a common thing
0: across the entire ancient world. It's not a uniquely Roman, it's not
1: uniquely Roman. The Greek Athens, a democracy also had slavery for example. Yeah,
0: everyone did Carthage. Everyone did. Um, So you had a combination of a lot of the land being owned by a very, very small portion of, of aristocrats and a massive amount of slave labor. So you have a growing Roman population that essentially doesn't have much room for upward economic mobility. And, and again, you can look at this, there are some people that will look at the Gracchi brothers as, oh, see, they were just you know fighting for the poor. And I, I think there's certainly some truth to that. There was also some problems with the way that they wanted to go about these reforms. They wanted massive um, land reform in such a way that really, really would have upset you know anything resembling kind of the status quo with respect to property rights and things of that and nature. And their
1: critics also called them, you know, populist demagogues. And to some yeah. degree, they were they were correct on that front.
0: No, they they were they were very much about they they understood that there was there was two sources of power within the uh, plebeian class. One was the numbers, the sheer numbers associated with it, and two was the the veto power. And not to mention the fact that they did have a good argument. Right, it's. <clears throat> the the fact that roman conquests were specifically in legally being set up in such a way as to benefit a relatively small number of the overall population was problematic, right? That wasn't capitalism. It wasn't free. You'll see. You'll see modern people now going, "Oh, they were fighting against the excesses of, of capitalism." Oh yeah, the Marxists class. will
1: try to argue that oh, the Grotke brothers break. were predecessors to communists because they were fighting. Yeah, they had a capitalist system at the time. Yeah. No, they did not have a capitalist system. I, I, although I would argue that they they definitely had markets, right? No, they, so they, had, like they they had like they had
0: markets. They had property rights. There was there was things that that there were. There were elements
1: of capitalism. Yeah, that
0: helped. Fu- that helped fuel. Um, you know, a, a growing economic prowess, not just a military prowess. Like it, it would be inappropriate to think that Rome simply got all of its wealth from conquest. One of the things that it did that it, it is known for is its aqueducts, its roads, its infrastructure. They have special, they had special mechanisms of of creating Roman concrete that are superior to the concrete that we use today. Because People forget that because they didn't industrialize that the
1: Romans were somehow not innovators. They were arguably yeah. some of the most innovative people in the ancient world and that's what contributed to the growth of the Roman economy was they had technological growth they just didn't industrialize well
0: the, the two things that Rome provided because Rome wasn't known for its philosophy you could say that Rome certainly contributed to uh, ideas of systems of government to provide greater representation but it wasn't known for its philosophy it wasn't known for um, it's not that they didn't have any philosophy I, I didn't <laughs> say they didn't
1: have any philosophy they weren't known for it like the Greeks
0: were they ripped off a lot. there was a reason why the Romans were so Romans were so enamored with the Greeks and if you look at a lot of Roman culture, there's a heavy Greek influence, which makes sense because the Greeks settled Italy, right? The Greek or not some of established city states in Italy, and they were highly influential. The Rome, the Romans were growing up within the shadow of Greek and Macedonian culture. So it makes sense that they adopted a lot of it. Um, and there was a lot of parallels between those two things and they were heavily influenced, but the things that were, were. Uh, I would say that if we look back on like Roman contributions, their their road system, their military. So, w- what do you need for an economy to flourish? Well, obviously, you need people that are going to actually engage in economic transactions. You need you know uh, natural resources to some degree. It's, it's not even the most important one. You you need a mechanisms for which trade can flourish, and that usually involves things like currency and, and ability to transportation, and you need security. Well, again, the Romans were some of the best in the ancient world for providing security, uh, providing a stable environment for which trade could flourish, and also providing a mechanism for which trade could take place over long distances. And so all of these things were taking place, and the Gracchi brothers were adamant about using you know, the mob uh, in order to try to achieve for greater reforms. Now you can make the argument that well could the Gracchi brothers have actually achieved what they were looking to without using the mob right could they have a, could they have appealed over time in order to get reforms possibly but it probably would have been slower and it probably would have been more incremental however their reliance upon the mob not to mention the fact that they completely upended the traditional like you weren't supposed to serve as a consul or or as a tribune back to back terms you were oh and they to did more
1: term. than the, uh, they abused their po- both of them abused their powers tremendously and because the roman constitution was unwritten they yeah. would just violate social norms that were politically unheard of at the time and then get away with it because they had the mob behind them backing them. I mean, they pushed the envelope as far as they could go, especially, I I think it was Gaius that that really pushed the envelope as far as he could go after his brother was killed. Yeah, Because when Tiberius was killed, again, I I mentioned that political violence was not a a normal thing in Rome. It became a normal thing after Tiberius was killed because then his brother came along and he was like, oh, that's how we're going to play this game? Yeah, Okay. We'll play that game because I've got a mob behind me. Yeah. And we'll just do the same thing in return. And violating those political norms led to the emergence of violence as a tool to achieve a political end state, which led to the unraveling of the Roman constitution. Nick, I actually have, because I know that we want to get through the collapse of the republic. I actually have a few points that I wrote in a Facebook post that you liked actually a few years
0: ago. <laughs> what well, if I, I liked it, it most of been.
1: <laughs> I, I want to go through some of these points because I want your take on, on, right, on yeah. whether or not you think this contributed to the collapse. So I asked a question you know, what contributed to the collapse of the Republic? And I had a lot of of friends of mine that gave many answers. Some didn't understand the difference between the Republic and the empire. Yeah. Um, But I actually think this question of what contributed to the collapse of the Roman Republic in some ways is actually more relevant to us today than what contributed to the collapse of the empire. Not that there's not overlaps between the two, because I know that we want to talk about inflation this episode. This might, by the way, be a little bit longer than normal because we we both (laughs) love this topic so much. But, um, So here's the list that I came up with and let me know your thoughts on it. Um, Here's the answer that I gave in no particular order. Number one, and you kind of got to this a little bit, growing inequality due to a mass increase in Rome's cheap slave labor from overseas conquests. Number two, and I, I think that you already agree with that. Number two, and I hinted at this before political failure to reform the republic and its institutions combined with a collapse of the republic's unwritten constitution as the universally recognized supreme law of the land. Mm-hmm. Number three, and this kind of goes into number one a little bit, the expansion of Rome's territory from a little Italian city-state to a multi-continental empire, which placed an untenable strain on Rome's administrative system. Because a lot of these provinces fell to the hands of very rich aristocrats or generals, and it wasn't under necessarily civilian control. Number four, and this is incredibly important. The polarization of Roman political life and society into two broad factions—this happens after the Gracchi brothers, (laughs) the Optimates and the Populares—led to a growing partisanship that brought even the most basic functions of government to a grinding halt. And you could argue that the emergence of the Populares started with the Gracchi brothers, with their own populist rhetoric— And then this is one that's kind of unique to just Rome itself and might not be super relevant to the U.S., but it actually explains why we have the political system that we have when it comes to the relationship between our military and our, our civil government, which is the Marian reforms. Which led to a collapse in civilian control of the army and the rise of generals who commanded the personal loyalty of the legions. This especially plunged the Republic into, or this essentially plunged the Republic into a near endless cycle of civil wars, which rapidly chipped away at the Senate's power in less than a century. And this came after the, um, number six, came after the Punic Wars and the Macedonian Wars, which is the lack of an external threat to unite the Romans. This is something when it, the, the whole mas mayorum, right? These these moral principles, these virtues, the whole, what does it mean to be a Roman? You yeah. have certain responsibilities to your neighbor, to your family, to your country, to your city state. Like the Romans were very patriotic people yeah. because they, it was them against the world, And, and as long as it was them against the world, they were going to stand shoulder to shoulder and always look out for each other and, and not necessarily a a tyrannical way with big government, but, but from a, a, we're all one big family. And when those external threats were gone, the Romans didn't have anybody to look, look to as a threat other than their, than themselves. They looked to each other as, as potential rivals rather than as, as, you know, working towards a, a single goal, a single great project. Um, So, you know, the destruction of Carthage, Macedon, and the Seleucid Empire destroyed Rome's civic virtues by driving the political class to place more emphasis on their own personal gain than on the betterment of the Roman state. And then I wrote, see the Mos Mayorum and its decline. Yeah. Number seven, and this is incredibly important for the Grocke brothers, and I've hinted at this before. The rise of violence as an acceptable political tool and the decline of centuries-old political norms and traditions that emphasized compromise and coexistence among competing political classes as a virtue to strive for, rather than an obstacle to overcome in a quest for absolute power. And then finally... The last point is the exploitation of the chaotic and volatile situation by unruly, shrewd, and ambitious political figures and generals who saw in the crisis of the republic a means to increase their own personal power. And then I ended with a quote, which is, the sad truth is that humans rarely become more virtuous once they acquire power. But with the rarest of exceptions, this may be history's most enduring truism. So what are your thoughts on those as my eight points for what led to the collapse of the Republic.
0: No, I I think you're, I think you're right. I think if we're going to put them in order, um, it's interesting. Some people will actually go all the way back to Scipio Africanus. Yeah. Um, and, 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 w- and the reason why they say that is because Scipio Africanus, when he beat Hannibal was essentially the equivalent of a rock star, a movie star, um, president and Eisenhower right like he was he was he was everything like he he was and and because of that he controlled such a degree of popular support and and it's not as if people within Roman culture hadn't achieved individual um, levels of popular support before but it was the idea of um, the methods in which it was gained. And the degree of power one actually wielded it as a result of that. Now, I think it's a little bit unfair to to blame Scipio Africanus, um, but I, I get what they're going with. It was the idea that we have someone that is getting so we have someone that is getting more popular than Rome itself, right? The idea of Rome must be the most popular thing within Roman culture. It cannot be a person, and and that was the part where people started to get cautious. And and there was a certain degree of humility, believe it or not, that was actually kind of required of people to stay within within the the um, um, honest mayorum. And and so, what I see is there were legitimate like Rakai brothers were addressing legitimate grievances. I think part of the way that the Roman political structure was organized is that it encourages, it encouraged people to try to act quickly within the time that they had. Because if you've got, if you can serve as a tribune for one year and you can't serve consecutive terms, well then if you can't get it done right now, you can't get it done. And so obviously there, there was a, in in a society steeped in a certain amount of tradition, you can wait somebody out. And so I believe that, you can even if you don't like what the gracchi brothers did in all respects you can agree that they were trying to address a legitimate concern and you can also agree that the system was set up in such a way as to encourage them to act quickly and if they felt that there was no way that they could possibly get this done because of various veto powers within the the roman political system well then it it encouraged the use of mob violence and intimidation in order to achieve objectives if you if you thought your cause was just and there was never going to be a way to do it right, that level of civil disobedience, right, at what point does it become appropriate?
1: It reminds me of um, John Adams' quote about how the Constitution is only fit for a moral and religious people. Yes. You could actually make the same argument for the Roman Republican Constitution, that yeah. it's only fit for a moral and arguably religious people. They weren't Christian, but they... They're deeply religious. They, they weren't Christian, but they were deeply religious. And not only that, they, they again, I cannot stress enough this whole emphasis on virtue and honor. There, there were, And this is, again, I'm going to, this is, I think, the third time today that I've brought up another reason why men are obsessed with Rome. Men look at Rome as, in many ways, a model to aspire to when it comes to... This, this sense of unity and brotherhood. And and you know what? You're going to go out there and you're going to go fight a battle. You're going to go build a civilization. You're going to, what's the phrase? You're going to plant trees whose shade you will never get to sit under. Yeah. But maybe your children or grandchildren will. And that was emphasized in Roman society oh in the height of the Republic for centuries.
0: There, and It's it, so much so that a general who had been successful, who then lost the battle and got captured, would agree to come back to Rome to encourage his country to continue fighting and then get back on the boat and go back and be tortured to and death. sacrifice And himself. if there's something the Carthaginians knew about, it was torture, right? So this was not a slow death. And he knew it. He knew it going, he knew it coming back, and he did it anyway because of the idea of Rome, right? That is... I, I think you're right. I mean, men, men look at that and not to say that women couldn't do, but if you're wondering why men are so fascinated with it, part of it was this idea that just really galvanized and drove, drove people to do, you know, incredible things. But let, let's look at this timeline There real once quick. was a dream. Yeah. A dream that was, was Rome. Rome. Oh, yeah.
1: Actually quick shout out. If, if you want to learn more about the uh, Grockett brothers, there's an excellent video series from extra history on the Grockett brothers that I highly recommend. And then there's one more kind of funny thing That I totally recommend people listen to, which is the
0: unbiased history of Rome. Yeah, that's that's it. Exactly. <laughs> those are
1: my two shout outs. Well, in this and, time and, Mike, and Mike
0: Duncan's The History of Rome is probably, is, has grown to be one of the most popular. It's a I think 179 episode podcast and he does a brilliant job. It is so easy to listen to. I probably listened through That's it. That's what got me times. hooked
1: onto this topic actually. Yeah.
0: So let's let, I want to I want to give everyone the timeline for how quickly some of this happens. So now you have you got to understand you you have a, a a nation which again according to legend started in 753. So now we're in 121 BC. So, right? Like do the math here real quick. We're talking like, you know, 600 Years. Um, the Republic started in what, 509. Mm-hmm. So we are now talking about a, a Republic which has existed longer than our own.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Almost twice as long. Longer than our own. Well, but the Republic specifically, yeah. you know, 500 and now we're in one. So it, it's existed a long time. <clears throat> the Gracchi brothers get in around 121, excuse me, 133 BC. Then the other Gracchi brothers, um, 121 BC. Right. So now we've got like a a 12 year period in the one thirties, one twenties, um, and all that goes through. And now you're starting to see this political polarization. You're starting to see this fight over, uh, economic disparities. Right. And, and again, disparities that were legitimately inappropriate because of a, a legal system, um, which I don't think you could say the same thing in the United, in modern day United States, but it doesn't matter if people believe it. People believe that the economic disparities are due to injustice. They will operate appropriately. And by appropriately, I mean inappropriately. (laughs) So the Gracchi brothers are doing this. Then what happens? Then you have Marius. Marius comes. He gets elected consul. The thing that Marius is most known for, along with his military battles, is the complete reform of the Roman military. Because the Roman military, all the way up until this point, once again, was was not just—it wasn't poor kids kids going down to the Roman recruiting office and signing up for the army— Right. You, there was, there was a very strong sense of um, you had to have a certain status within society to be permitted to serve within the military. Now, obviously there was times without Roman history where they would loosen that. Like if you just lost 80,000 troops at canny, you're probably going to open up the roles to more people. But there was still this strong sense of Roman uh, political leaders, military leaders were, were, uh, you know, worked for the Senate or oftentimes members of the Senate. Uh, or consuls, and then the people serving in those militaries were usually landowners. They were people that could afford to serve in the military because up until a certain point, you brought your own equipment, you brought your own horse, you brought, like, so the Marian reforms changes a lot of that. Now all of a sudden for the first time en masse as a regular as a regular portion of of the order of business of doing with the Roman military, they were recruiting from these people. And if you think about it, this made sense because the Gracchi brothers were murdered. They didn't get all the reforms they wanted. So you had an ever growing portion of the plebeian class who didn't have jobs, you had a, an expanding empire. You needed a larger military. You needed more people. Marion comes in and goes, "Hey, we've got a bunch of out of work young, you know, men that are causing us a lot of political trouble troubles in the streets of Rome. Let's put them in the army, and let's go. Let's go conquer some stuff, <laughs> right? And and so you you had." you had that sort of reform that was taking place with some of the logistics within the Roman military but you also had other innovations that were taking place now we're getting into something a lot more closer um you know at first you had the old phalanx system which is closely based off of the greek and macedonian model then you had the uh, the three tier system with the um hastati uh, the Principus and the uh, uh, Triani, like the three tiers. Then you get more into like the checkerboard Roman formation of kind of what we see in all the movies and what we imagine and what we think of with the Roman army, where you have a lot more standardization with respect to equipment. You see them utilizing uh, equipment. So for instance, the, um, the helmets that they use were not a Roman invention. It was something they actually stole, I think, from the, the Gauls. Um, the, a lot of their swords and whatnot were influenced by the Spanish and and so, but you start to see the standardization across the border where you have have now a standing professional army in a way that is somewhat unique within the history of the Roman Republic. <clears throat> and so, Marius does these reforms. Okay, you you start to see the social wars. Now you're starting to see problems. You start to see like um um you know problems kind of w- within the Roman Republic where more people essentially want greater status. They want the benefits of Roman citizenship because just because you lived within the Roman Republic didn't mean you were a Roman citizen. That was something you either got as a, as a prerequisite of birth. You could buy citizenship at certain points. Uh, It would change over time. But at this point you had more people, especially within the Italian peninsula fighting back against Rome saying we want to be, we want the same privileges of Roman citizenship that, you know, was, was, increasingly the Romans
1: start fighting wars with themselves rather than with neighbors because Marius or Marius, I don't know how to pronounce that. I always called it Marius, but he also became uh, I I think a consul six times, which was like unprecedented. Remember the whole, you would have like these term limit type of things. That was, that was also, you know, thrown out the window when some of these generals started to acquire political power and had the loyalty of their legions instead of the legions being loyal to the Senate or the people.
0: Yeah. And then, I, I believe Marius uh, fights some wars with Sola. So Sulla, yeah, Sola is the first. So again, we've talked about the kind of the introduction of, of political violence with respect mm-hmm. to the transition of power starts with like the Gracchi brothers using the mob and then getting assassinated uh, by members of the popularis and what, or excuse me, uh, the, the, um, uh, the, the patrician class Sulla is the first Roman general to essentially take a Roman army and then utilize it to seize power, right? That had never been done before. And like make himself dictator. Yeah. That had never He's been Caesar done before Caesar. Before Caesar. Now what's it, but not really, right? This is the part that's important to understand about what Sulla was trying to do. Sulla was, Sulla was also trying to address a great deal of disunity and problems that were taking place within Rome. And so he used the Roman military in order to seize power, to create stability, but then he didn't just seize power and become emperor. He actually set up a whole host of new laws in order to attempt to prevent anyone from doing what Sulla did again.
1: I that's actually a good point because Sulla, I believe, eventually hands that power over near the he end of does. his life. He yeah. does.
0: He 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 hands it over. Um, this is where you start to get into the servile war twos, where you think of like Spartacus and things mm. like that. This starts to happen in the, I think it's the seventies uh 80s and 70s BC, but the important thing to remember here is that you're starting to have these these rise of great men, right? You know, Mm -hmm. Marius, um, Sulla, Marcus Licinius Crassus, Julius Caesar. These this is yeah Pompey. These are the time when these people are starting. These are um, they're you know as you get into like the um, what is it the the 70s and 60s? They're all kids right now. They're growing up within this environment. So they're seeing this or it's in very, very recent history, but their vision of the, of the Roman Republic now includes a lot of strong men, which are actually using physical violence, military force in order to seize power to quote, save the Republic.
1: And but somehow it keeps getting worse with each new person. We actually have a super chat from Joe yep. that's incredible. By the mm-hmm. way, Nick, I, you you might not have noticed, but like we're getting some really great feedback in this episode. If anybody, like like part of me was thinking, have we been dragging this on too long? <laughs> Is this a bad topic? And like, there's so many great. Great comments here. Joe says, these long-form discussions are so valuable. Intellectually honest debates, relevant topics, historical information, and the underlying respect for all make for a great example for political discourse. Thanks, Nick.
0: Oh, thank you, Joe. I really appreciate it. We Again, we were a little bit, Hamilton, I think, was kind of looking at us going, okay, guys, is this going to be a four-hour
1: this, this is. <laughs> we're going to try to make it three hours. No. I mean, I, do, by the way, we have a few comments here. Dr. White said, I, I think I speak for a lot of people that I don't think any of us will be upset if this goes longer than normal. <laughs>
2: <laughs> good deal do we have any more questions we, we need to get to we do have one more one second um
0: while you're looking for that all that yep, to yep. say like the post that you made i think you addressed all the major points like i'm sitting there in my mind trying to go through it and then if if we if we can appreciate the timeline that is taking place so for instance if you were to look at u.s history Obviously we had our civil war. But if you're looking at kind of like modern history and the direction the public's going, it's interesting because you you had like the civil rights movement. And the civil rights movement in the United States w- was uh, successful. I mean, some people will argue the degree of that success, but legally it was successful. And I would say culturally it's been successful. And I think that's part of right now where we're looking at it, where we're seeing kind of popular leaders that are stepping up that are, are a little bit more comfortable with violence. And you could point to both right and left on this, right? A little bit more comfortable with violence in order to achieve political ends. And the, and the question is, it, is there a legitimate grievance that, is not, that cannot be addressed through our, our system? Uh,
2: did you have that question yep. now? We've got another super chat from professor Keene. I find it a tragedy that the Romans built roads, bridges, and other infrastructures at a fraction of the, of the time and cost that lasted thousands of years. Well, we can't even do that with our own nation. Just look at I 85.
0: So here, here's what I'll say on that. Cause I've thought about this and it's a really good point. And people say, my gosh, why the Romans were able to do this, you know, <laughs> thousands of years ago. Why, why can't we pull it off? Um, I think there's two things that we have to take into consideration here. One, we should definitely be impressed with with the scale of Roman construction, especially with roads, buildings, aqueducts. Just absolutely incredible what they're able to achieve. One of the things that they've—somebody uh, correct me in the chats if I'm wrong on this. I believe that one of the things that they figured about Roman concrete, which is different than our own, is that Roman concrete was not just mixed with the typical elements that we do, but they also added lye. And, and what that means is that lye expands when it's exposed to moisture. And so when you when, when you started to see problems within Roman concrete, that lie once it was exposed to moisture would expand and essentially kind of self-seal in certain areas. And so it provided for greater they, longe- they, longevity. They say
1: that it gets stronger over time as it's exposed yeah. to the elements, which is how you see like bridges that were built 2,000 years ago. People can still walk over them today.
0: Yeah. Now, here's the one thing I think we need to be fair about, right? Especially when we're talking about Roman roads. Roman roads did not have eighteen-wheelers, you know, dri- driving down them, um, you know, every single day, all day, you know, over a twenty-four hour period, right the the amount of the amount of weight and stress that was put on Roman roads that were being that were you know that legitimately are old Roman roads, which is nowhere near the amount of stress that is put on a on a modern day road. Now that doesn't mean we couldn't do things better. It's just to say that I, I think that's a that's a fair you know, critique, but no, it, it, when, when you look at the, the scale of, of Roman engineering, that is, I think one of their, their lasting contributions that
1: um, their political system and their military and, and Christianity.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Later, in the, we later might, we, in the later, we empire. might bring up later in this episode. So, so let's get Let's get into everything that we're looking at right now. Let's draw some parallels between our Republic and the Roman Republic. Legitimate grievances. Um, but using the mob in order to try to achieve them, instead of going through the traditional political uh, mechanisms for achievement. So the introduction of violence as a tool to achieve domestic political ends, um, the I- incredible um, bifurcation of society, and at a minimum, the bifurcation of, of Roman society within the, the strength of their the poli- politics being taking place, the the rise of you know strongmen. Marius being one of them. The other thing that you need to understand about Marian reforms is that part of what they were doing at this time is that soldier pay was not dependent upon the Senate collecting taxes and then, you know, putting it in your bank account. Um, Soldiers were now largely paid based off of not only spoils taken from war, but it was it was largely becoming the responsibility of the commanders to pay their forces. So I want you to imagine a scenario where you have a bunch of very, very disaffected uh, poor people within a society who feel politically alienated, who now for the first time do have a, a chance at a career because serving in the Roman military could bring with it Roman citizenship. It brought decent pay at the time. It brought the opportunity to attain greater wealth. It carried a very, very like honorable position within society. So, the military became a mechanism for upward economic and social mobility within the roman system but their pay was dependent on their general okay are you loyal to the senate or are you loyal to the general that's providing your pay and if you and if you are working for a successful general not only are you getting paid well but when you're conquering territories you're getting more loot. You're getting more plunder. You're getting more prestige as a result. So you have a huge, huge incentive. It's this mutually beneficial incentive between making sure that your general successful because that is a, a mutually beneficial uh, arrangement, but your loyalty toward Rome or your loyalty toward the Roman system or the Roman Senate is probably nowhere near as significant as it is for practical reasons to your loyalty toward the general in the field. And not to mention the fact that this this doesn't just work um, in, in in kind of a that direction. You have to remember that every other Roman general is also vying for the loyalty of their troops. And so Roman generals are competing with one another on who does the best job conquering lands, taking care of the troops, who controls more legions. And this is where you start to see... These old traditions, right? And this, th- we can't emphasize this enough. We've talked about this before. If you think the Constitution is what protects your rights, you're wrong. It's belief in the power of the Constitution.
1: Yeah, the, the Roman Constitution was powerless to defend itself.
0: And so it it gets to the point, well, every piece of paper is, is powerless to defend itself. You need people that actually believe in it, that are willing to defend it. And what you're starting to see with as a, I don't think it was an intended consequence of the Marian reforms. There was a lot of things within the Marian reforms. You could look at and say that made perfect sense. It made perfect sense from a military standpoint. You can point to the Gracchi brothers and say their grievances made it. perfect sense. Yeah. You you can even point to Sulla, who was terrified that the mob was going to take over Rome and destroy any vestiges of, of the normal order and say, it makes sense that he had to use the military in order to restore order. And look, he gave it all back. And look, he even insisted on new laws to go in place but in order to prevent it. But you're it's breaking. between each of these
1: three things. They're all yeah. contributing to the breakdown of that civil society and this is why in some ways i think the collapse of the republic is more relevant to us than the collapse of the empire with one arguably two massive exceptions which is inflation and immigration um or unchecked illegal immigration i should say yeah. but um the 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 biggest problem ultimately that that i think you know, really highlights the collapse of the Republic. And this is where, where Julius Caesar comes into play. And eventually Augustus comes into play Hamilton. There's actually a map that, that I I, I want to show people. So after the Marian reforms link, um, you have the crossing of the Rubicon, one of the most important events in history. This is when, um, Julius Caesar, who comes along after Sola, everybody probably knows this story, but for those who don't, Julius Caesar, he, he comes along after Sola. He's a very famous general, um, he is, in many ways, one of these people who, who kind of contributes to the complete collapse of the Republic, which had already been faltering at that point. And um, the, 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 um, Caesar had been conquering in Gaul. He had basically conquered all of Gaul, modern-day France. And the, um, the Senate told him to, to basically disband his legion and stand down before he, he returned to Rome. And there's this river called the Rubicon where a general is supposed to disband his army before crossing it. Yeah. Otherwise, you're declaring yourself an enemy of the state because you're basically saying, I'm going to war with the Roman Senate and we're, we're going to start a civil war here. And it had happened a few times before, right? We would mentioned Marius and, and Sola. Well, Caesar doesn't do it. In fact, there's, there's actually a, um, a line about the Rubicon um, that a, a famous Roman historian wrote that I, I want to read off because it's, it's, it's very, very powerful. Um, when Caesar reached the river... Plutarch, a very famous ancient historian, he wrote this. He said, When he, Caesar, reached the river known as the Rubicon, he paused to reflect, now as he drew nearer and nearer to the dreadful step. His mind wavered as he considered the tremendous magnitude of this venture. He ordered a complete halt, and for a long time he weighed the matters up silently in his own mind, his resolution wavering back and forth, and his purpose suffering change after change. For some time, too, he discussed his perplexities with his friends around him. He considered the sufferings which him crossing the river might bring upon mankind, but he also imagined the great fame which his story would leave to posterity. Finally, a short passion came over him, as though he were throwing all calculations aside and abandoning himself to whatever the future might have in store. He uttered the phrase frequently used by those who were on the point of committing themselves to desperate and unpredictable chances. Let the die be cast, he said. And with these words, he hurried across the river. And that act basically marked the beginning of the, the actual beginning of the end of of the Roman Republic, which had already been in crisis up to
0: that point. It it had been Sulla, again, what what needs to be understood, the Gracchi brothers, then Marian, then Sulla. So now you've created a mechanism where violence is a regular part of, of adjudicating differences, or at least the threat or intimidation of violence. Generals, now the armies work for the generals they don't work for the republic um you have multiple strong men this we've had triumvirates now where triumvirates is is a term within d- even during the re- the republic era where there would be multiple um like strong men kind of sharing power in order to try to create some sort of balance um but when the whole the whole The whole crisis here, right? This is, we talked about this before, like what would cause a national divorce? It's like, well, you got to have conditions and then you have a catalyst, right? So Julius Caesar did not technically do something that had never been done before in Roman history. The difference was, is the conditions were different, right? The Gracchi brothers weren't enough because the conditions weren't sufficient. Marian reforms were not enough because the conditions weren't, Sulla was not enough because the conditions were... But because of Gracchi, because of Marius, because of Sulla, the conditions had now been set to where when Caesar did it, something changed, something broke. And so the result was, is that when Caesar crossed the Rubicon, because remember he had been in a triumvirate at this time with uh, him, Pompey, and I can't remember the third guy because he was fairly insignificant, I believe. At this point, <laughs> The third guy, um, nobody. Uh, well, originally, originally I think it had been Marcus Licinius Crassus, but he got wiped out at uh, Kari and against the Persians. Um, He had been the richest man, little side note, Marcus Licinius Crassus was by far the richest man in, in Rome at the time. And one of the things that he used to did is he had private fire brigades. And so when someone's house or business was burning down, he would show up with his fire brigade and he would offer to put out the fire, but they had to sell the property to him at a reduced rate. It and, was, and it was
1: they, um, Caesar Pompey and, and, Crassus. Yeah, the Caesar, second
0: triumvirate was the one that included Lepidus that nobody, Lepidus, remembers. Yeah, nobody really remembers. But anyways, that, that was a powerful triumvirate amongst three powerful men, right? Pompey had been Pompey was Pompey the great. He was a very, very successful um, Roman general. Marcus Licinius Crassus was the wealthiest. He also kind of, um, And he is the one that also beats Spartacus. He's the, he's the general that that led the armies against Spartacus, but he also felt like he was diminished in, in the eyes of, you know, compared to Pompey. And then Julius Caesar had actually been the junior member of that triumvirate. He was kind of like the kid they, but he got transalpine Gaul, which gave him more legions. And then he actually, the, the first, the first forays that he had into Gaul was actually at the request of other Gauls who were being invaded and so he brought the legions. He started to experience success. We're going to fight a defensive war that yeah. involves conquering the yeah. entirety of Gaul. <laughs> and then he kept, and then he kept conquering. Right? He kept conquering Gaul. And the thing was, is that and then go, it goes to Britain. Yeah. Briefly. And then a lot of his, a lot of his military actions at that point were considered a violation of Sulla's reforms. Right? Because Sulla, I'm going to, I'm going to read this out real quick. Another sullen reform saw that provincial governors would not overstay their welcome in their provinces, greatly reducing their chance to build a personal army to lead against political rivals or Rome itself, as Sulla had done. Because there were a greater number of magistrates under Sulla's reforms, this led to governors not needing to stay in their province long because there were now ample magistrates to fill a vacancy in a province after his one-year term ended. Furthermore, if a governor were to abuse or exceed his powers, they would be tried in the treason court. Now this becomes an interesting uh, problem because while Caesar has the power that he currently does, he can't be tried. He can't be tried in treason court, but the moment he returns to Rome and gives up the power, he knows he's instantly going to be tried for treason by the Senate, by his rivals in the Senate. He knows he's going to be. So here's his question. He's like, well, if I, if I do the honorable thing, well, then I'm going to go back and I'm going to be, I'm essentially going to be exiled, if not executed. Um. So once again, these conditions have been met and now the catalyst is he's going to march across. Well, the Senate relies on Pompey to stop Caesar. The problem is, is that Pompey's position at that point, even though he's kind of the senior member of the triumvirate, even though he's more popular than Caesar, even though he's, you know, arguably a, a more accomplished general than Caesar. None of that matters because he doesn't have sufficient legions in the Italian peninsula to stop Caesar from marching on Rome. So he has to actually flee in order to gather his armies. And that's where you see this massive civil war taking place between Caesar and Pompey, which Caesar will eventually win. And this war, I, people don't have, they look at the battle of what a Pharsalus, where where Pompey was was uh, defeated by Caesar and they're like, oh, that was... This, the, the civil war took place in Greece. It took place in Egypt. It took place in North Africa, like other parts of North Africa. It took place in Spain. Like this civil war just devastated the Roman uh, empire or the Roman still the Republic technically at this point, because Caesar was not granted. He was not given um, dictator status. The Senate tried to come up with a compromise with Caesar where they were going to make him dictator of the Roman Republic, but not Rome. And they, they were they were trying and they to they also didn't
1: name him emperor. No. Um, he is not the first Emperor.
0: No. And then so you see like the Catonians and Cicero and all you see all these these powerful names that, that we now kind of recognize as um, you know, political thinkers w- within both the the Republican and the uh, the beginning of the empire, they're fighting against Uh, Caesar. They're with Pompey. And then when Pompey loses and the rest of Pompey's generals are eventually defeated in Spain and other places, um, that's the part where you get the Ides of March, where Caesar comes in ostensibly to. um, Because one of the other things Caesar did, like Sulla did, is he expanded. He expanded the Senate. So Sulla expanded the Senate from like 300 members to like 600 members. Again, that gets into the whole political- He stacked the Senate. Every time these people try to reform the
1: system, somehow they make the system weaker for the next generation to, to make the circumstances worse. And so like Caesar in some ways is the fourth guy- in this part so you start with the Grocco brothers then you go to Marius right, then you go to Sola then you go to Caesar he's the fourth guy but guess what he's not even the one that completely overthrows the system Hamilton we have a map here it's immediately after this um, this link that I wanna show people. For our audio listeners, this is a fantastic map showing the yeah. the, the Civil War, the Caesar Civil War. This is from
0: worldhistory.org, by the way.
1: Yes, between him and Pompey. Um, I highly recommend that you, you take a look at the um, World History Encyclopedia. They have some fantastic maps. And we found this like five minutes yeah. before, because remember, we did an audible for today's episode. So I'm glad that we were able to find this in a, a sh- um, you know time crunch. But this really shows like the extent of what Nick was talking about in terms of this war was fought everywhere. It was fought in Spain, it was fought in Italy, North Africa, it was fought in Asia, it was fought in Greece, it was fought in Egypt. Virtually every single corner of the Roman Republic at this point in time has seen conflict other than Gaul itself, which had been conquered by Caesar. And really what you see after Caesar's victory, after Pompey gets betrayed in Egypt and his head cut off, and then and then, you know, Caesar kind of weeps because his former friend, now yeah. foe, oh, gets yeah, because you understand Caesar
0: <clears throat> used to be Pompey's father in law. Even though Pompey was older than him,
1: they they, they were very good friends yeah. before, and they were political allies before they became enemies. And and I mean, in some ways, you know, so Caesar kind of represented the the head of the popular or of the popularis. Pompey, in many ways, represented the the Senate, and so he was kind of the representative of the optimates. Yeah. Which, by the way, can I can I draw another parallel between Rome and, and today, the the divide increasingly that you're seeing in the U.S. I would argue, I remember some people um said that, you know, this divide is between nationalism and globalism. I don't actually think that it's that divide. I also don't think it's necessarily a divide between liberals and conservatives, or even the left versus the right. Increasingly, increasingly the divide that you're seeing is between elites and populists. And I would argue that there's a strong overlap between elites versus populists today and the optimates and the populares of two thousand years ago in the Roman Republic.
0: I, I and think that's both I think that's sides.
1: Both sides have some pretty terrible policy proposals. Also some good points, but both sides are contributing to the disintegration of the political system. Think about all the terrible things that the elites in in the West, in the U.S. have pushed. We've talked about the cathedral and the Leviathan, and why are all these people, why does Disney and the New York Times and Harvard all believe in the same things? Well, they're all part of that elite class, and they're all pushing this whole, oh, in order to save democracy, we need X, Y, and Z, and X, Y, and Z involve tyrannical you know, violations of civil liberties in many respects. But then when you see the populists increasingly I remember I made a, 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 a Facebook post recently that like America wants a Caesar and she's probably gonna get one. Yeah. And what what you see increasingly is is the, the populist right is turning towards political strongmen. I, I'll use Trump as an example, but he's not alone in that front in order to solve these problems that the elites are creating. And so both sides have these points where it's like, yes, you can see the points, but you can also see the criticisms. And I'm certainly not pro-elite. I'm actually probably more populist than I am elite, but I look at the populist right and I, I see that the elites have created so many problems. They've wrecked the system so much because they're the ones that have political power for so long that and, and that any attempt to push back on them has been met with with just straight up hostility in some cases violence and so increasingly the right the populist right is saying Oh well, if that's the the way the game is played, then why do we need to respect these political norms that they're trashing? Well, we're just holding ourselves back, and then th- there nothing's holding them back. We're gonna play. F- we're gonna fight fire with fire, and they did the same thing in in the Roman Republic, fighting fire with fire, and and the end result was ultimately you could argue that neither the the populares or the optimates won.
0: Augustus won in the end. Mm-hmm. Well, I, no, I I think there's a lot of truth to that. I I think. Um yeah, I, I think increasingly what, what ends up happening is you, you have again you have a group with a legitimate grievance that thinks that well the only way that we can actually get adjudicated the old processes don't work the system doesn't work it's rigged. The moment you think the system is rigged, you don't have any sort of incentive to fight for the system. And so the the question is is what is the system in the United States? Now I think one of the the greatest things that we've had in the United States is a written constitution, and and is somewhat of a a a Basic understanding of, of how the system works and how the system can be changed. You know, we're going to get to this at some point. We might need to do a second episode for this. Otherwise, we're going to be here for on two the empire. More hours. I'm yeah. totally down for that. We, we might need to do a second one. Thursday is on going to be a really
1: interesting episode. I actually won't be here Thursday. Yeah. Thursday will be an interesting episode about homesteading, which I yeah, think yeah, with lot well of people with Amy like.
0: Amy Fuel from the she started the uh, Homesteaders of America. But, but, if,
1: but if you want to do like next Tuesday, well, I don't. I just want to <laughs> think. I just
0: want to think about it here for a quick because like we could. They, the reason why we wanted to spend so much time on understanding the how Rome developed, how Rome grown, expanded, and then the things that ended up becoming a threat to the Republic is because that's where we're at. It's not the fall of the Roman Empire, which explains what's going on right now in the United States. It's the fall of the Republic, and it doesn't get nearly enough attention. And, and why did the Republic fail? Why, why did we, why did the Romans, because let's face it, the, from, from 509, from 509 to, um, you know, gosh, all, all the way through, almost to- 27 BC. Yeah, to 27 BC, the Republic endured. Now, for the last hundred years, the Republic was in a lot of trouble and you can start to see the cracks, right? For a hundred years, 100 you years saw the cracks. um. And, and but, under, but before four hundred years of of relatively few cracks. Yes, and 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 despite the fact that they had to endure incredible um, internal and external pressures, right? But the the point I want to get across, the point I want to get across for this, and why why do we obsess about this? Is because we see so many parallels. We see so many parallels. Um, and one of the biggest things that always strikes me, and this is this is actually something in the, in the movie Gladiator, which was, from a historical accuracy perspective, horrible, like absolutely horrible, right? <laughs> they're, they're like Gladiator got almost you didn't every- watch
1: the unbiased history of Rome <laughs> then, because the, the dude who did that actually yeah. he had a joke. It's it's a hilarious the, the, that is. Not accurate, but the way that this dude did did this series was he was like, what if you had YouTube in the Roman Empire and you had like propaganda pushed by the Roman government or by the Roman Senate, yeah, you know, glorifying Rome and demonizing everybody else, and so like just a very skewed view of history. So it's well researched. There's yeah. a lot that's true, but you know, it's so it's Pro-Roman. so skewed. It'll, yeah, it, it, like. You know, portraying the Germans as like subhumans and the Persians as like devil worshipers. Yeah. And, and and so like when he gets to, to you know the, the time period of, of Gladiator, he actually portrays the plot of Gladiator as actual history. Oh, and gosh. then like the next episode he you know, he's like, you know, of course this is real history, but what they're gonna lie and tell you about is and then he tells <laughs> you the actual history.
0: Well let me let me let me say this much. There, there's that point, there's that scene between um uh, Marcus Aurelius, who was, who was considered one of the greatest Roman emperors and uh, Maximus, right. Um, and Marcus Aurelius says there was a time when, you know, it, 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 only a, like, what was it like a whisper and it would, it would disappear. And I feel like, I feel like what he's talking about that he goes there was a dream that was Rome mm-hmm. and it was essentially so delicate that a whisper and it would disappear. It's this idea that it's this understanding that part of what you are defending within a republic, part of what you're defending within a system like that is that the overwhelming majority of the people agree with that which is noble about your system or that which is noble about your shared history, not perfect, but noble and worth fighting for. And and the idea that the process is put in place may not always achieve the greatest result, but they provide a peaceful means of adjudicating those those differences or those problems or addressing those challenges. And that the processes are in of in and of themselves contain a sense of fairness and justness that means that any challenge to them is immediately rejected by such a majority of the of the population that to do so just seems egregious. It's beyond the pale. And I, and I worry that we are getting to a point where it, the belief in that is what we're losing. And, and, and I talked about this. We did the Sean Ryan show just went up yesterday as a matter of fact, because Sean Ryan asked me about, you know, how do you deconstruct a nation? And my big thing is you have to give it an identity crisis and an identity crisis starts with tearing away your vision of the past or tearing away with what your understanding of the past is and and minimizing it and diminishing it within your eyes to the point where, well, why is this even worth fighting for? And then taking away the very things which you rely upon because all of a sudden, if the Constitution of the Declaration of Independence of the processes that we've used and arrived at over now hundreds of years, if these things don't matter anymore because they were all rooted in in you know bigotry and racism and sexism and patriarchy, Okay, well, then there's no reason to fight for them. And the question is is what do we do now? And usually what we do now, even if even if we've had some sort of break with the past, can still be found in our connections with our faith and our family and our society and our own personal experiences. But now even that's under attack. your Your family is bitter and repressive because they're part of the same patriarchal system that created everything else around you. and And you know your your religious faith is is bad and stupid, and it's nothing more than Sky daddy. And even your own version of yourself, you know, when you feel that confusion, when you feel that separation from everything that gave you purpose and meaning and an anchor within reality, even that's wrong now. And the reason why you feel the reason why you feel some sort of breaking with everything that used to give you meaning is not because the things that used to give you meaning are good and you're longing for those things. It's because actually you're not even what you think you are. You're not really a boy. You're not really a girl. You're not really a man. You're not really a woman. You're not really, you know, attracted to this person or that. No, it's this. And that's the part where when, when you start to look at this and all of a sudden, and, and you even see it within Sulla, right? Sulla's, Sulla's justification for being a strong man was, I'm going to save the Republic. But because of the mechanisms that he used in order to save it, he sowed the seeds for its eventual destruction. And that's the part where sometimes when people get mad at me and like, why don't you advocate using greater government power to achieve the? Because I've read the story before, and because everyone that attempts to do it ends up sowing the seeds for something much worse, no matter how noble their intentions might be. Even if you, even if you try to concede that no, 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 Sulla really did want to save it all, it doesn't matter. Why? Because he broke with something so fundamental to what made up the Roman sense of identity that once it was gone, you couldn't get it back. And he replaced one identity with another one. And the new identity was the strong man. And it's only a matter of time before the strong man is no longer concerned with saving that which came from the past, because that which came from the past wasn't that good anyways. He's going to create a new future. He's going to create a new version of what the national identity or national psyche looks like. He's going to create a new version of what you look like as an individual. Marx was all about the new communist man. So for
1: the vast majority of political strongmen that come along are not Cincinnatus. They're Augustus. And I think that's the biggest difference there. And we've talked about this in multiple podcasts, multiple podcasts before. No politician is coming to save you. If you think that you're going to fix the problems that we have, the social and political and even economic problems that we have in this country, you're, you're not going to fix those by just walking into a voting booth and, and voting for voting R across the board. Right. You know, vote vote for Trump and, and he'll just save everything. It's that mindset. And, and that's not an endorsement of the democrats by the way right that's not an endorsement oh, no, of Biden. I, I
0: want I want you to go out I want you to vote I want you to be politically yeah, active I want you to fight for I want you to fight for the sort of candidates that you think are actually going to save the things that you actually care about but if that if you if you look at that as your sole responsibility well I voted I did my civic duty politicians are the ones that want you to believe that the sole responsibility that you have in a civil society is voting for them and donating They want you to believe that that is the limit of of your ability to affect change in a positive way, in a peaceful way. The only way that you can
1: save America is vote for me. And that's increasingly the message of a lot of people on the right is, you know, the left is destroying the country. And I would certainly argue that a lot of their policies are very, very detrimental and destructive, self-destructive. Look at San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Chicago as examples of this, right? So... We've talked before about how self-destructive many left wing policies are, but increasingly the rights response to that is, is kind of flat footed. It's simply vote for us and we'll fix and we'll, the problem. And we'll try to slow it down and we'll try to, and many times it's <laughs> not even, we'll fix the problem. We'll try to slow it down. We'll manage the decline better. Yes. And, and, and so eventually the response from a lot of Americans, and it's, it's totally understandable why this is the case, is to look for a political strongman, to look for, for somebody like Trump. And I'm not, am I trying to say that Trump is going to be Augustus? No, he's not going to be Augustus. Trump, if anything, is more Gracchi brother or Marius or maybe Sola. He's not going to be Augustus. It's going to be somebody after him, way after him. Trump is not going to be the guy that puts, I'm sorry to break it to people on the left, but Trump is not going to be the guy that puts an end to the American Republic. It's going to be somebody way after him. It's going to be a successor to him. And it might not even be somebody in the same party. It's The, the fact is, is that, Again, when I drew the distinction between elites and populists, populists on the right look to somebody like Trump as a political strongman to fix the problem, but it's the act of looking for a political strongman to fix the problem that is going to result in the destruction of the Republic, which by the way, the left also bears just as much responsibility for as the populist right, because we wouldn't have these problems and people wouldn't be looking for political strongmen to fix these problems if it weren't for the fact that the left's utopian vision for everything, trying to impose it against people against their own will and then demonizing them when they push back against it, if they simply adopted this policy that we're a republic of republics and you should live and let live and we shouldn't try to social engineer everything from Washington, D.C. and consolidate political power there, guess what? They're supplying the rope that will one day be used to metaphorically hang themselves because by supplying all of this political power and consolidating it in D.C., what you're doing is when a Caesar comes along one day, and he will come along we've talked about this in the right- wing backlash episode when a Caesar comes along one day he will have all the tools that he needs to consolidate his power
0: well I, I think I think that's one of the things that's actually unique about the the modern left like if, if you look at the more traditional left if you look at the more hardcore Marxist left uh, that was still that was still a, a a vision which actually pushed more of a a militaristic and masculine version of society. The modern left doesn't push any of that. I, this is the part where I'm looking, I'm going, you realize you're not capable of imposing your own will, right? You, you, you actually rely on the people that you claim are horrible and mean and toxic and part of the patriarchy in order to actually carry out what you want. So understand if you think one day you're going to march triumphantly into Washington, D.C. with Sulla, I, I got news for you. Those legions are not going to be made up of a bunch of purple-haired, you know, people screaming <laughs> about, you know, pronouns in their bios are being misgendered. That ain't happening. And and that's the part where, again, I think we've we've emphasized this a lot, where it's like, look, we don't want, I don't want a right-wing backlash that actually results in the destruction or the, even the significant diminishment of the republic. You're a Cicero. I or don't. No, no, want no, that. Not a
1: Cicero. A, a Cato Cattonian. the Younger.
0: Yeah. Well. It, the, the point there is, that's the other problem that people need to realize here is there is no direct parallels to where you can say, oh, I'm Cato and you're Cicero and you're Caesar and you're Sulla. There, there may be aspects of that, but there's always going to be differences. What, what it really is and what I think is so important for people to understand now is that the most the most impactful thing that they can do with respect to saving the republic is not just voting. It's actually raising your children with a commitment to a certain set of ideas upon which republics are based and need to thrive. They have to have them. It needs to be something where somebody can look at their own side and be like, that is unacceptable and I will not tolerate it. I will not tolerate that as a means of adjudicating power. And it takes someone on the left to look at their own side and being like, if you stack the court, I'm done. I will join hands with the right to oppose you if you stack the court. It takes someone on the right saying, if you are going to, if you are going to go into the Capitol, violently, break windows, and attempt to intimidate someone, I will not stand by you when you do that. Right? If you're not willing to do that. If you're not willing to, if you are so committed to whatever your side or elements within your side have decided is necessary to save the republic, even to, up to and including, violating the very principles upon which the republic thrives, you're the problem. And I'm not going to apologize for saying that.
1: But Nick, we need to ban our political opponents from running for office in order to save the democracy. I think you saw the, the thing that they're trying to do in Germany right now. It's not just the U.S., right? Like in Germany, the government, the SPD-led government is like contemplating trying to ban AFD from running. The, right now polling in second place ahead yeah. of the SPD. by the way to, in order to save democracy since when is it to to save democracy we need to throw our political opponents in prison and ban them from appearing yeah. on the ballot
0: oh and you're seeing you're seeing more and more of that rhetoric on the left especially within leftist academia when leftist academia usually gives you a five to ten year preview of what's going to be said within popular leftism oh they're
1: now saying like the constitution I, is a threat to democracy yeah
0: I, I want to get to this right now Daniel Bob said no one cares about playing fair anymore fight or lose let me explain what I mean by this. I am not suggesting that when your political opponents throw out all the rules and you, that you're supposed to sit there and of the Queensberry rules and just sit there and get pummeled. You know, I'm not suggesting that I'm asking, what are you fighting for? If all you're fighting for is your side to win, that's the problem. If you're not fighting for anything greater than your side to win, I've got news for you. It's only a matter of time before you don't fit in with your side anymore because you weren't willing to display enough loyalty when your side really needed it. If you're not fighting ultimately for a certain set of principles, if your side isn't first and foremost dedicated to a certain set of principles which transcends their immediate political benefit, then ultimately you will wake up one day and find that your side was willing to justify a whole bunch of horrible and terrible acts to include acts against you if you are not sufficiently loyal no matter what. I'm not willing to do that. Not now, not ever, ever. I'm not doing it. This, this just infuriates me, this idea that, well, I'm not asking you, I'm not asking anyone to sit there and get kicked in the face repeatedly because, oh, well, you know, I, I can't fight back. I got, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying figure out what it is that you're actually fighting for. All right. Hamilton,
1: there's one final map that I want to show people as we wrap up the...
0: And and Daniel, Bob, I I appreciate you acknowledging that as well. So that's what I meant. Sorry.
1: (laughs) (laughs) As as we wrap up the the collapse of the Roman... Uh, republic in the beginning of the empire where we're probably going to call it for today. I, by the way, I definitely want to do a part two about the Roman empire because they had a different set of problems and challenges. They, they also expanded Rome. Rome went through a cycle after the Republic was overthrown and the empire was proclaimed under Augustus where Rome expanded again, reached an apex and peak, the Pax Romana, which yeah. again, today is the anniversary of the beginning of that. Yeah. And, um, and then went into its own decline. And it's a different type of decline yeah. than the Roman Republic. But guess what? It's also really relevant to today. Yeah. Especially when we talk about the currency and some of the immigration problems and social problems and also some political problems. Yeah. And again, oh, and economic you see problems. the consolidation of political power even under an empire. Because here's the, here's the, the thing that diehard Roman fans understand. When Augustus came along They didn't publicly proclaim an empire. They actually kept the pretense that it was still a republic. This was the principate. It, they still actually called it a Republic yeah. for hundreds of years until one guy came along after the crisis of the third century and decided we're going to make this a formal empire. <laughs> and I'm now your Lord and master yeah. and established basically the beginning of a feudal system. And his name was
0: Diocletian.
1: We're going to we get, we're not fans of him on this show. We,
0: this is, this might be one area where we break with a lot of traditional fans of the Roman empire and whatnot is, is I think Diocletian was a horrible emperor. Like I can, I can respect, Some of the decisions he had to make within the the times that he lived in, I can respect the difficulty of them, but ultimately I cannot stand. He did more harm
1: than good. Aurelian is the guy that you need to take a look at who actually saved them from the crisis of the third century. But point is, is that like the Roman empire is a whole separate topic. Another about 500 year span. What's interesting is that in Roman history, you have about 500 years of Republic and then you have about 500 years of empire. For a total of around a thousand year long civilization until the final collapse of the Western empire. And by yeah. the way, even after that, the Eastern empire kept on chugging along until 1453. But the reason that I, I really want to do a part two at some point, we can't do it Thursday because you've got the homesteading yeah. thing, but maybe next Tuesday on the empire is because first off, this is still a topic that is being discussed. The whole Wiremen obsessed with it. And in second off, there's still so many parallels between the yeah. empire and in where we're at today, when it we, comes to the economics and the in the politics of it, and some of the social problems,
0: we we foolishly believed that, that we could do the entire history <laughs> of Rome in one episode. That Christian and I could get through. I mean, I, I'm gonna be honest. I was super stoked that we actually got up to the fall of the Republic. We still haven't even like sealed the deal on that one yet, but we we've kind of laid the groundwork. Uh, I hope what we did for you here today is by focusing on the Republic and the and the various conditions that led to its fall. Uh, explains a little bit about why so many of us not only find it a really really interesting piece, a portion of history, but also find it really relevant to what's going on within our own country today. Because we do feel that it provides some indications, some pathways, not not just to identify what's happening, but hopefully to come up with countermeasures that prevent the fall of the republic. Because I would certainly hope that none of us want to see that. So I think what we're going to do is we're we're gonna we're gonna close it down right now with right here at the fall of the Republic. And then we're, we're going to come back in a, in a not so distant episode. Uh, we do have the, the homesteaders with Amy fuel. I really want to get to that one on Thursday. I think it's going to be a great episode because she's going to talk a lot more about things that we can do on an individual level. And some of the organizations that are out there actually facilitating the sort of intentional communities that we talk so much about, which we also think is a bulwark against the fall of the Republic. So do you want to wrap us up with Augustus here? or do you want to come at nope, that? No, nope. I, I think we're going to we're gonna come at that one next because I think that really does go into the, the next version here. So if I could make the argument as the title of the show implies, here's what I'll say is that, again, understanding these things generally don't happen overnight. Conditions have been set over a long period of time. And one of the most important things, Christian listed off eight different um, reasons why the republic fell. I, I think so much of it actually boils down to the idea that people lose faith within their institutions. They lose faith within the very things that give them meaning and purpose within their society specifically, but also within the systems and the processes within their government, which allowed them to be able to peacefully adjudicate problems among one another, but also allowed them to be able to live in relative peace, even within a society where people have different views on how their life should be lived. And once you get to the point where all of a sudden, increasingly political violence, the, um, the subverting of those processes. Once people start to subvert them and get away with it and what's certain people see a benefit to subverting and getting away with it, it only encourages more of the same. And over time people come to the conclusion, well, if the other side can do it, we can do it too. And you will increasingly justify more actions which either subvert or lead to outright political violence. This is one of the things I talked about. I know some people, this is a subject that you can't talk about without somebody getting mad at you, but I'm going to go ahead and talk about it anyways, because that's what we do here. When January 6th took place within the United States, um, and I want to be specific here, I'm talking about the people that violently entered the Capitol for the purpose of using intimidation in order to prevent a normal part of our political process from taking place. I absolutely, unequivocally oppose that. But one of the things that I also had a hard time with is all the people on the left that were talking about this being the greatest assault on our democracy since the Civil War. Because, first of all, as I've said before, we're a constitutional republic. But let's leave that aside for a second and get to the heart of this. One of the things I pointed out was that in the entire summer leading up, To what happened on January 6th, we saw a never ending stream of people from the left glorifying and supporting political violence in cities all across America to include setting up autonomous zones within major cities like Seattle and Portland. We didn't just see them allow it to happen. They actively encouraged it, actively worked with people that were organizing not just peaceful protests, but violent riots. And every time we brought up that this was not the way to adjudicate political differences, we were told that, no, it is the way now because you haven't sufficiently listened. You haven't given us what we want. This is a crisis and it needs to be solved. We had We had doctors coming out, health officials, the same one that said that you couldn't go to church and you couldn't open up your business, were saying that it was perfectly fine to go out and participate in protests. And that's where people started to see that, oh, this is just the way the game is played. And when you have convinced people The political violence and subverting of the systems in order to achieve political benefit or power is perfectly appropriate, and not only appropriate, but morally required. You don't get to show up and act shocked when the other side decides, well, I guess we'll do it too. And so the thing that I emphasize in all of this is that if you want to save the republic, you can't just save the systems. You can't just save the processes. You can't just save the buildings. You can't just save the institutions. You have to actually save the principles upon which all of those things are built. And people have to believe that they are actually still noble and true and capable of delivering us just outcomes. And at the very least, capable of recognizing that genuine coexistence is not compelling other people to do what I want through democracy. Genuine coexistence is to say that you can live your life the way that you want, provided you don't infringe on the rights of others. And insofar as we can agree and work together, we will choose to do so in voluntary cooperation. And in those areas where we cannot, we will agree to leave one another alone so that reality can determine perhaps which one of us was right based off of the course of actions we chose but we're not going to come in and violently require someone to do what we want. Nor are we going to violently take somebody, take something from somebody else that they have rightfully earned and give it to somebody else in order to subsidize them for their vote. Nor are we going to bail out a business or a bank because they simply have better lobbyists than the rest of us. Those are the things that break apart a system and create the conditions for the eventual strongmen to come in and claim that they're doing it all in our best interest and to do so with the full approval of a majority of people. That's what we're fighting against. And that's why we study the fall of the Roman Republic. So hopefully we provided an informative episode here. Uh, I wanna thank everybody for their comments and their interaction. It was a lot of fun today. Again, I, I can't stress this enough. We had a completely different episode planned, different outline, different everything. Uh, We set up this outline in like 10 minutes. 10 minutes. So I I appreciate you guys hanging with us. We know we had a bit of a delay. We didn't start at the normal time that we like to, and we try to be consistent. Uh, But I appreciate you sticking with us. I hope you really enjoyed it. We are going to have a follow-on episode. We're going to have a (laughs) follow-on episode probably on Tuesday where we'll actually talk about the fall of the empire and the second iteration of this. So once again, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you to Good Ranchers for sponsoring us. Remember to go check that out and use that promo code to get some great deals on your own sacred chickens. (laughs) We will see you next episode.